Thanks to the Yanks, usually presented over some of these stations at 9 p.m. Mountain Wartime, 8 p.m. Pacific Wartime, and Inner Sanctum, usually presented by the makers of Palm Olive Shave Cream over some of these stations at 9.30 p.m. Mountain Wartime, 8.30 p.m. Pacific Wartime, will not be heard tonight. Your hit parade, usually presented over some of these stations at 9 p.m. Pacific Wartime, will be heard immediately following the special broadcast. America salutes the President's birthday. Saturday, January 29th, 1944, 11.15 p.m. Eastern Wartime. We're tuned into WEAF in New York as the March of Dimes is about to broadcast America Salutes the President in honor of FDR's 62nd birthday. America Salutes the President's Birthday. From New York, Paul Whiteman, Georgia Gibbs, Jimmy Durante, Gary Moore, Mary Pickford, and Lily Pond. From Washington, the United States Marine Band and Basil O'Connor. From London, Edward R. Morrow and Major Morton Wilson. From the West Coast, Bob Hope, Francis Lankford, Frank Sinatra, Dinah Shore, Eddie Cantor, Jerry Colonna. Where were you when Pearl Harbor was bombed? Pearl Harbor, I was on my way to the golf course when... Uh, yeah. It's true. No, no I was like on that. my way to the golf course when I heard uh, FDR declare war. When the thing happened, when they announced... Yeah, they interrupted Sunday afternoon. And I was on my way to Lakeside Golf Course in Birdman, and I heard that thing. Yeah. And then uh, I heard our, our president, FDR, announce it. ...to aid the vital and humane cause which, next to global peace, is closest to his heart. The fight against infantile paralysis. Birthday greetings go out from all over the land to the man in the White House and take the form of contributions to the March of Dimes to help banish the scourge of infantile paralysis from our land. I only wish our enemies could look in on these birthday parties tonight. They'd learn something. They'd learn you can't subjugate the American spirit. You can't defeat a people who find time to pause in the midst of the greatest war effort the world has ever known, to devote themselves to charity, to humanity. But now, on with our party here at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York. The biggest and best birthday party the world has ever seen. Paul Whiteman, the undisputed king of jazz, gets our party underway with I Got Rhythm. On January 29th, the Battle of the Green Islands began with the U.S. and New Zealand forces invading portions of Papua New Guinea. Meanwhile, Soviet forces captured the town of Trudova in Russia, and the British sank a German U-boat at the Bay of Biscay in the Celtic Sea. The next day, FDR's birthday, was also the 11th anniversary of the Nazi Party's rise to power in Germany. Hitler gave a radio address, spending little time talking about the war, and mostly talking of Germany being Europe's only defender against communism. But despite Hitler's statements, the tide of war was slowly turning in favor of the Allies. When the March of Dimes pitched to Hollywood, it was Bob Hope who emceed the program. Hollywood is the next port of call on our salute to the President's birthday. So here we go for 20 star-studded minutes of mirth and melody with Movieland's top-notch performers, including Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, Dinah Shore, Francis Langford, Jerry Colonna, Axel Stordahl, and his orchestra. Okay, Hollywood. Thank you very much. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob March of Dimes Hope. 
telling all you generous Americans to send the president a dime for a birthday present so some kid can have a future. Well, here I am in the March of Dimes. You know what a dime is. That's a little thing that when you leave it on a plate for a Hollywood waiter, he comes up, bows low and funny, and then spits right in your eye. <laughs> but it's an honor to be on this big March of Dimes show. They picked me because there are some song numbers to be introduced, and I was the only one that could pronounce the name of that new hit, uh, Messima Bucha... Uh, Bucha... Uh, Mucha... Uh, I had relatives on the committee. <laughs> And there are a lot of stars on this program And a big crowd was waiting outside the stage door I didn't realize I was so popular You should have seen the autograph haunts collect around me But they left on a kind of a sneaky thing Frank Sinatra did He, he told him he was Frank Sinatra One fan ran up and tore the shirt off my back And I said, souvenir He said, no, my laundry didn't come back this way A fan tried to tear the shirt off of Crosby's back the other night, but he got an awful shock. The wiring short-circuited. <laughs> but everyone in Hollywood is contributing to this cause. Bing auctioned off one of his best horses, took the money, added three cents, and turned in his dime. <laughs> A lot of losers here tonight, huh? I started to go around and collect dimes, but everybody in Hollywood is sick, and I'm afraid to go near him. Dorothy Lamour has a cold. Hedy Lamar has a flu. Gypsy Rose Lee has a strip throat. <laughs> but... but all the Republicans mail their dimes to President Roosevelt in Washington. It's the only chance they get to see any change in the White House. <laughs> Republicans were worried about the soldier vote, so they took a poll of some of the army camps last week. Wilkie got 100,000 votes, Roosevelt 150,000, and Betty Grable, 9 million. <laughs> and tonight is the president's birthday, too, and I just found out the president doesn't bother blowing out the candles on his cake. He just waits for Eleanor to go by, and the breeze takes it from there. Bob Hope was, at this moment, not only America's most popular comedian, he was also quickly gaining a reputation as a man who'd go anywhere in the world to put on a show for U.S. troops. Tonight, we'll focus on hope, war, and a rapidly changing world. Was there any one of the trips that was any more memorable than... Yeah, I think other? so. I think the one we did with England and North Africa in 43, because we experienced something that I wasn't looking for, and that was a lot of bombing, you know. I dove into the ditch ahead of Langford and things like that, some, uh, <laughs> some hero other heroic adventures, you know? <laughs> But uh, we were bombed in Bizzardi, and we were bombed in Palermo, and it's in the book. I tried to get under the bed. I didn't know whether to get to between the spring or the mattress, or, <laughs> oh, because they were bombing, Daddy, and I, I was just laying there saying my whole life passed before me. Actually, it was my lunch, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was something else. Ike, we saw Ike uh, the day... The next, a couple of days later in Algiers, he said, I understand you've been in a couple of bombings. I said, yeah, it's not my racket. He said, well, don't worry about it here. Hell, we haven't had a bombing here for four months, you know? And that night, about three o'clock, wow, wow. I got up and Pepper's knocking on my door. I said, hey, get Francis Langford. This is it. And I got it. We went down to the wine cellar, the Letty Hotel, which they were using for a bomb shelter. 
And I'm sitting there, you know, with no seatbelt, just sitting there. And they're going boom, 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 boom. And Stubby K walked into the room, which made the whole thing. We didn't even know he was in the country, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? Well, I'm with the unit too. Where, where do you sit? Right there, buddy. And the whole, 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 whole. And the thing finished after about an hour and a half, you know, it was all clear. And we went upstairs and Quentin Reynolds, we'd met them the day before, and Clark Lee and H.R. Knickerbocker and Steinbeck, went to their room to talk about the thing. They never got out of bed. They slept through the whole thing. I said, wait a minute, you don't get up for a bombing? He said, what's the difference? If you're gonna die, die in bed. So I'll know if we ever have another war. That's the, st stay in your ceiling. Of course, uh, of course, a wine cellar isn't a bad place to be during a bombing either. No, not at all, because the whole hotel lands on you like that, <laughs> boom. <laughs> And at the undertakers, they slip you under the door, you know. <laughs> Thanks for the memory. Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 148. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we'll spend February of 1944 with America's top comedian, Bob Hope, as he whisks himself around the country, entertaining troops and broadcasting to the masses. For the memory if this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's opening song is Bob Hope's famous duet with Shirley Ross, Thanks for the Memory from his breakout performance in the big broadcast of 1938. It was composed by Ralph Ranger, with lyrics by Leo Robin, and became Bob Hope's signature tune. Oh, well, that's life, I guess. I love your dress. Do you? It's pretty. Thanks for the memory. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. Thank you so much. Thanks for the memory. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. That pair of gay pajamas that you bought and never wore. <laughs> Say, by the way, whatever became of those pajamas? Huh? Huh? We said goodbye with a highball. Then I got as high as a steeple. Did you? But we were intelligent people. Columbus had sailed on this boat, the Indians would still own America. <laughs> come, come, darling, you've been in worse fixes than this. Yeah, we have, haven't we? Sure. We always managed to wiggle out somehow, though. Say, remember that deputy sheriff in New Haven without his pants? And <laughs> <laughs> the time I walked down well, the... This is no time to start remembering. Now go on and make your announcement. Can you remember England? Do you have any memories? Of no, the only thing I remember, I lived in Bristol and I protected my dog one day and I got hit with a rock right there. And it's still there, the uh, little, yeah, little, there? little indentation there. Protected your dog from what? Uh, well, from some us. kids were throwing rocks at it, you know, and I ran out to grab them. And, uh, yeah. 
I got beaned. I think that's what helped me be a comedian. I've never been the same since. <laughs> he was born Leslie Towns Hope on May 29, 1903 in Eltham, England. The fifth of seven sons, his parents were William Henry Hope, a stonemason from Somerset, and Welsh mother Avis, a light opera singer who later became a cleaner. The family eventually moved to Bristol for a time before emigrating to the U.S. aboard the SS Philadelphia, passing through Ellis Island on March 30th, 1908, before settling in Cleveland, Ohio. What kind of a kid were you, though? Did you play games like other kids, cowboys and Indians? And... Uh, no. I started very early as a, sort of a rat. I was a rat of the neighborhood. I moved to Cleveland, you know, and I started going to the YMCA, and I was a pretty fast runner, and I had a buddy that could run faster than I could. Mm -hmm. And we used to line up all the picnics in the summertime, and we'd win all the races. You know, they had good prizes, $10, $5, $3. This is when I was about around that age, 14, 15. So we'd, there were two places. There was Euclid Beach and Luna Park. And we'd find out what time the athletic events were, an American Steel and Wire, you know, or the butcher picnic or something. Mm -hmm. We'd call up and we'd arrange the races, see? Fix them? Yeah, we'd call up and say, uh, what time are the races there? And the guy say, 3 o'clock. Oh, that's a shame. What do you mean it's a shame? Well, we wanted to come out and take pictures of the head of the athletic events. Uh -huh. And if you could do it like at 4 o'clock at your place, we're going to Luna Park at 3, see? So we'd go to Luna Park. The guy said, oh, that's fine. We'll do that because he wanted to get his friend. <laughs> so we go to Luna Park and get in all the races, win all the money, then get on the streetcar and go to Euclid Beach and win all the money there. And you scheduled them the way you wanted to. We scheduled them on the phone. Rats. <laughs> that is sneaky. It's a wonder you didn't My original name was Lucky Luciano. He earned pocket money by singing, dancing, and performing, winning a prize in 1915 for his impersonation of Charlie Chaplin. Now, I went to high school and was going into college, and then, uh, then I went to uh, dancing school, and I got so many offers that I, you know, I went right into uh, showbiz. Dancing school? Yeah. And didn't you teach it for a Yeah, while after a while I did, I taught. Geez, you got a nasty memory. That's right. You really have. Well, I, we, we've looked into your past. I know that you'd fought for a while professionally. I was uh, not professionally, of, never. Not I was, professionally. I was a semi bad amateur. I fought under the name of Packy East. That is the weirdest name for a fighter I've ever heard. How did you come up with that? Well, a friend of mine fought under the name of Packy West. And for a gag, I went down and signed up as Packy East. And I was beautiful. I really was. I fought as uh, Rembrandt for a while. I was on the canvas so much. <laughs> <laughs> you can feel that coming. Can you? In December 1920, Hope and his brothers became U.S. citizens when their British parents became naturalized Americans. The next year, he was assisting his brother with the electric company when a horrific accident crushed his face, the reconstruction of which led to his distinctive appearance. I've had a very bad accident when I was uh, about 15. I was helping my brother in uh, Columbus, Ohio, clean some uh, lines. He was the electric company there. Uh -huh. And I was up in a tree tying a rope on the tree after they'd cut it away quite a bit, you know, and they'd cut it away too much. And I rode the tree down, and this is what happened. You mean Seriously, that's how I got this nose. They set my nose on the hospital floor. That's, that's a true story, true? true story. Yeah. And here, you see, this, see. what I covered now with a little pen. See there? See this little scar here? Little scar here, yeah. See this one here? Yeah. You want to kiss me? Uh, well. <laughs> no, it's true. 
and uh, th this is it. This is what I wound up with. They didn't give me a mirror in the hospital for about seven weeks, and I finally got a load of it after it was kind of healed up, and I said, well, I guess I'll have to go with NBC. <laughs> so that's the story of the Hope Knows. I've never heard that no, that's true. before. No, that's true. That's true. I've got brothers who are fairly normal-looking. In the 1920s, Hope formed a dance act called The Dance Medians with George Byrne and the Hilton Sisters, conjoined twins who performed a tap-dancing routine on the vaudeville circuit. He acted in a double with Byrne, eventually making his way to New York. The act flopped, pushing Hope to strike out on his own, changing his first name to Bob in 1929. Actually, it started in Newcastle, Pennsylvania, where I made up my mind to do my single act. And then I went to uh, Cleveland, my hometown, so I could be near the food while I was breaking in, you know. What did it? What made you decide to go into the... What made me? We had a double act, and yeah. we worked up here at B.S. Moss's Franklin. When it was big time, we were on number two, yeah. and we went out there. We thought we had an act, and we did the act, and we rushed out twice to get two bows. Had to work real fast. And after the show, the manager came up. He had hope and burn, and we, opened, we rushed to the staircase. We were on about the third or fourth floor. And we said, yes, we thought it was another day somewhere or something, you know. And he said, you can at least put on some makeup and look good. So I got the idea we ought to change our act or something, you know. <laughs> so we went out to the west, and I, I got this chance to announce in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. I got a couple of laughs. That encouraged me. So I went to Cleveland and broke in my act, and I... We used to do some great jokes like, where do the bugs go in the wintertime? You can search me. You know, stuff like that. Real. I actually wasn't too hungry, but I starved in Chicago. I stood around on the streets of Chicago trying to get a date. I just changed my name from Leslie Towns Hope to Bob Hope. Leslie Towns. Good old Bob, because it sounded rugged, you know. And I was just about ready to give up and go back home with my big sack of laundry. And I met a friend, and I got a date. Started in there. A and date in the show, but you mean a job? Yeah, yeah, a job. Yeah. I got $25, which was just like, you know, $1,000 to me because I'd been making $10. And I played Detroit, Michigan last weekend, State Fair, and I got a lot of money. But I stood in the wings and I said, just think, here I played. In 1928, I was making $5, and I'd go on for nothing, just to practice, you know. Mm -hmm. But when I was being paid, I'd get $5 or $10. And I sat there going, on, and believe me, I got a lot of money at Detroit. And I figured it out, though, after taxes, I was getting about the same. Twenty-five, <laughs> About $10. Yeah. Take home. Hope spent five years on the vaudeville circuit, failing an RKO screen test in 1930. But he broke out on Broadway, first in Ballyhoo of 1932, and then opposite Tamara Dressen and Fred McMurray in Roberta, which played 294 times between November of 1933 and July of 1934. Meanwhile, in 1932, he appeared on Major Bowe's Capital Family Hour, and later on Rudy Valley's Fleischman G. Stour, on June 3, 1933, alongside Jimmy Wallington. <laughs> Introducing now Bob Hope, one of the most promising of the younger comics. Bob comes to us with the highest possible recommendation. My old friends Willie and Eugene Howard are his sponsors. He shared with them the comedy assignment in Ballyhoo last winter, you may remember. 
This is Bob Hope. No kidding, I really did. Well, you're disappointed. Oh, but I have a little cold, Jimmy. I have a cold. Oh, you have a cold, yes. eh? What are you taking for well, it? Well, make me an offer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that cigar you're smoking won't help you very much. Well, give a man enough rope and he'll smoke himself to death. <clears throat> Say, what kind of a cigar is that? Oh, this here, this is a dandelion. Oh, a dandelion. Yeah, I was going to pick up a smaller one, but I saw this dandelion there. <laughs> oh. Well, it's uh, a weed. There's no <laughs> doubt about that. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, indeed. Say, don't you find cigars hard on the eyes? Do I? I almost went blind before I found this one. <laughs> That's a beautiful fur coat that you were wearing there. Did what I is guess? it, skunk? Yeah, skunk. I thought you'd get wind yeah. of it. <laughs> <laughs> No, Jimmy, that's a present for my father. When my father gave me this coat, I said, Dad, isn't it wonderful what a foul, uh, what a beautiful coat you can get from such a foul-smelling beast? And he said, listen, son, I don't want any thanks, but I would like a little respect. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you, Bob, you know, in spite of all the things you said about that coat, I think you look very well in it. Oh, but I'm shaky, Jimmy. I had a terrible experience last night. You did, eh? Yes, what happened? Yes, sir. I was held up by two men. No, held up by two men? <laughs> Where? All the way home. Boy, what a night. <laughs> You did oh, a take when you heard Rosengarden oh, playing. I, I love it. I finally, finally came to me. I woke up. That was it. Roberta. That's the thing I did in Roberta. Let's begin. When was that? When did you first do that? That was 1933 uh, and 4. Yeah. 1933 and 4. You know, it would sound funny if somebody said one of the greatest comedians England has ever produced, Mr. Bob Hope. And yet, I don't know how many Americans know that you were born over there. Well, I've been over here so long. You know, I came over when I was four because... Yeah. Uh, I left England because I knew there was very little chance of me becoming king. <laughs> or little did I know I could go across the channel to Denmark and become queen. <laughs> You're setting you me up for this stuff. Before, you know, you? Yeah. Yes. But I love this because that was one of the great thrills of my career, being in that show in Roberta at the New Amsterdam Theater, standing backstage listening to Russell Bennett orchestrations of Jerome Kern's music, and I'll come back to Broadway if I can get another setup like that. In 1933, he married his vaudeville partner, Grace Troxell. They divorced the next year, and Hope was soon with another performer, Dolores Reed. Though they spent the rest of their lives together, and Hope was notoriously unfaithful, a legal record of their marriage is vague at best. The couple would eventually adopt four children. In 1934, Hope signed a six-short contract with Educational Pictures. Radio soon followed. By then, he'd been developing performing chops so strong he could sing, dance, or act in any number of ways. On Friday, January 4th, 1935, over NBC's Blue Network, Hope debuted in The Intimate Review. It was sponsored by the Emerson Drug Company for Bramo Seltzer. The Intimate Review, presented by Bromo Seltzer, the dependable relief for so many kinds of headaches. Give me the good light and sweet music, and you in my arms. Tonight, Bromo Seltzer brings you a new 1935 edition of The Intimate Review. In addition to Jane Froman, Al Goodman and his Bromo Seltzer Orchestra, 
We also have a surprise for you. A new master of ceremonies, Bob Hope. But before I turn the microphone over to Bob, Al Goodman is going to play Stay As Sweet As You Are. I think comedians have to understand acting of all kinds, you know, because before you can satirize anything or burlesque it, you have to know what you're doing, you know? And you're not trained you, as an actor? You never had acting lessons? No, but I, I did get a lot of experience on the stage, you know, yeah. because I was started with a tabloid musical company, and they were amazed. First time I went on to uh, rehearse Roberta, for instance, Jerome Kern and Otto Harbeck said, how can you walk on the stage? Because they caught me at the palace in Vaudeville, you know? Yeah. And they said, how can you walk on the stage and just be at ease and act like that? I said, well, I was with a tab show for two years when I started. And I did everything in that show. I did leading man, I did blackface comedy, I do a Russian general, I sang in the quartet, I danced, <laughs> I played saxophone very good. They used to chase me from town to town. Someone asked if you were going to play the saxophone. Uh, they wanted yeah, to know whether no, it is. I'm not. I'm, not. <laughs> I'm cured. What? But that's the thing that everybody should do if they want to, you know, really go into pictures or anything, get that kind you know, of experience. And now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our guest master of ceremonies, Bob Hope, whom you'll no doubt remember from many Broadway hits. Ballyhoo of 1932, that beautiful operetta, Roberta, and the comedy star of that current laugh hit now on Broadway, Say When, Bob Hope. Thanks, Fred. Thanks a lot for that beautiful introduction, but you stopped too soon. You forgot to mention some of the other shows I've been in. Uh, you should thank me again, Bob. I saw those shows. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice chummy program you folks have here. I should have brought my brass knuckles. In case anybody came in late, this is the Broma Seltzer Intimate Review. It's quite a show. In fact, it's the biggest intimate review I've ever seen. It's really colossal in a small way. Why, right now, the opening number is on. Twelve beautiful girls are doing a lovely dance. Of course, you can't hear them at the soft shoe dance. <laughs> and next week, we're going to have the newest sensation, the bubble dance. A girl dancing with a big bubble. However, this being an intimate review, we're cutting it down. A midget with a marble. <laughs> now, as you know, we have the beautiful Jane Froman in our review, and also Al Goodman and his orchestra. I'm very glad to be here in a show with Al Goodman and his boys. Al's an old friend of mine. We live at the same hotel. Al has one of the better rooms. He has a room with a window. This first series was short-lived. Ratings were mediocre. But Hope found this first radio foil. Comedienne Patricia Wilder, who, with her thick southern accent, went by Honey Child. The intimate review went off the air in April. But on September 14, 1935, Hope was back on radio over CBS with the Atlantic family. While he was on for CBS in 1936, Hope starred on Broadway in Zigfield Follies with Fanny Bryce and in Cole Porter's Red Hot and Blue with Ethel Merman and Jimmy Durante. That would be something if you came back to Broadway. You did well, Red uh, Hot and Blue on Broadway? Yeah, Freddie Lowe has been asking me to come back, and I would really, I'm serious about this, the next year I'd like to come back and do a show on Broadway. That would be sensational. I really would. Could you, uh... I love, I love the stage. I just love you it. Like I started the there, I started on the stage. And I, I love it, and I, I love this, the, the excitement of this theater, you know? The New Amsterdam, that's still down there on... Uh, 42nd, yeah. yeah. Debbie yeah. C. Fields played there, Fanny Bryce, all those people. Oh, yeah. played with all of them. The band box. I played with Fanny in the Follies at the Winter Garden. 
Fanny Bryce. And, uh, Did you get on well with her? Loved her. Yeah. We used to be very great friends. Used to go and she lived up in Central Park West. We used to have dinner together, you know. She's yeah. a very, very wonderful gal. Very funny gal. Cute gal. The CBS show went off the air in September of 1936. But the next May 9th, 1937, Hope was back on radio for NBC's Blue Network on Sundays at 9 p.m. with the Rippling Rhythm Review. During this run, Paramount beckoned. The big broadcast of 1938 was to begin filming, and Hope was offered a part. He moved to Hollywood, continuing his monologues by Transcontinental Wire. The Rippling Rhythm Review was canceled in September, but three months later, Hope joined the Dick Powell Variety Show on December 29, 1937. The big broadcast of 1938 was released on February 11th, and suddenly, Hope was a huge star. Well, that's that. Are you upset? Upset? What have I got to be upset about? I'm in the process of losing $50,000 on a boat that would need a handicap against a lame sardine. I go on the air in about two minutes, and none of my performers will perform because you talked out of turn. Well, all I said was that you were losing $50,000 on the race. And what did they say? Oh, they said you didn't have $50,000. Oh, they did, eh? And what did you say? Oh, I stuck up for you. I said you had more than $50,000, $10 of your own. And their salaries. <laughs> and what? The, uh, their salaries. Bob Hope plays Buzz Fielding, OBC Radio MC, as a new $40 million radio-powered ocean liner, the SS Gigantic, is about to race its rival, the SS Colossal, across the Atlantic from New York to France in two days. W.C. Fields plays both owners of each boat, twin brothers. Buzz is busy trying to juggle his three ex-wives, his lukewarm girlfriend Dorothy Wyndham, played by Dorothy Lamore, and his inept microphone assistant. Buzz does his best throughout the voyage to announce the progress of the race and introduce a series of musical acts for both passengers and the radio audience. Meanwhile, Dorothy is romanced by First Officer Robert Hayes, just as Buzz and Cleo, played by Susan Ross, get sentimental about their broken marriage. Well, how do you do? Could you please tell me where they have the entertainment? The entertainment? Yes, you go right down the hall and you... This is the entertainment. This is where the broadcast takes place, right here. Oh, well, I'm honey child. I'd like to help you out. Well, I don't need much help, but uh, what can you do? Well, I'd like to sing. I want to be a singer in the worst way. The success of the big broadcast of 1938 propelled Hope to a new comedy series in the fall. Mitchell Lyson, the uh, yeah. director of our first picture, took me over across the street from Paramount to Lucy's restaurant. And he said, I know you've been on the stage for a long time, but I want to tell you in pictures, you work with your eyes, you act with your eyes. And that's all he had to tell me. Because I went right back to the stage. The first thing I did in pictures was thanks to the memory. And I threw my eyes all over the set. Some <laughs> of the grips were catching them upstairs, you know. And I was, thanks for the memory. And you can see it, if you ever see big broadcasts in 1938, dig my eyeballs, man. They change sockets once in a while. <laughs> I want to Act with your eyes. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. it. Well, it really is the thing. If you, you do act with your eyes, as you know. But, but you were overacting with your eyes. Yeah, you can. But yeah. I was really yeah. rolling them around there. On Tuesday, September 27, 1938, at 10 p.m., the Pepsodent Show, starring Bob Hope, took to the air. This is audio from the first episode. Hope is here for president. Hope is here for president. The Pepsodent Show, starring Bob Hope. Hope is here for president. 
bid you all hello. Here's welcome to our show. May we present for Pepsodent a guy you ought to know. Ah, thank you so much. Tonight is the night, and I hope you will tune in on us every Tuesday. Let's make it your chase away blues day by listening in when we begin. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Hope. <laughs> no, 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 not yet, Charlie. <laughs> but don't leave. Got <clears throat> our signals mixed. Well, here we are with a brand new sponsor, a brand new program, a brand new cast, and ready to tell some jokes. I'm very happy to be back on the air again. I've been very busy all summer working on a few projects. <laughs> what do they want all those ditches for anyway? <laughs> but I'm happy. My sponsor's really a very nice fellow. We get along swell. All afternoon here at rehearsal, we were riding piggyback. <laughs> Playing piggyback. <laughs> he was riding me. <laughs> and to show you that I'm up to date this year, I'm starting a pension plan for old jokes. So if you hear me using a lot of old gags on the show, remember there's a reason. <laughs> It means $30 every Tuesday. <laughs> Sorry, we have a nice cast on the show, ladies and gentlemen, that consists of... The topper of the feminine stars of Hollywood, Miss Constance Bennett, Skinny Ennis and his band, Jerry Colonna, our seven swingsters, six hits and a miss, and yours truly, Bill Goodwin. Oh, thank you, Bill. That's our announcer, ladies and gentlemen, known to his intimates as Bill Teeth Goodwin. <laughs> Show me teeth, Bill. That's enough, that's enough. Two more payments and they're his. Hey, he's a... Uh... <laughs> He's full of pep, isn't he? I'm a little tired myself. My uncle just left town. He was here with the American Legion Convention. He was in the Army. He was really one of the first men to go over the top. Somebody pushed him. <laughs> but he's from Florida, and he spent most of his time while he was here dropping ice cubes out of the hotel window <laughs> to make the people think it was hailing here in California. <laughs> it was a nice, quiet convention. The second night, the boys at the hotel gave the house detective 24 hours to get out of town. <laughs> Oh, but really, I want to thank the American Legion for getting me a half day off last week at Paramount. They came over to the set I was working on and took the camera with them as a souvenir. <laughs> Paramount didn't mind, didn't mind that so much, but they'd be very thankful if the fellow from Texas would please bring back Dorothy L'Amour. <laughs> that first season, Hope's 15.4 rating was good enough for 12th overall. The next year, he was up to 23.1 and 5th overall. In 1941, his rating rose to 26.6 and fourth overall. And finally, in 1942, his Crosley rating cracked 30 points, while his Hooper cracked 40. Hope's Pepsinet program soon began a five-year run as radio's top show. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received, and that consequently... This country is at war with Germany. I personally was on the Queen Mary crossing from Southampton to New York when this was announced. And I went down into the salon on this Sunday morning, and everybody on that boat was in the salon praying and crying. And I was supposed to do a, a ship's concert. And I told the captain, I said, there's no way I can do a ship's concert with the people in this condition. He said, it might be the best time in the world to do it. And I went on and did that show that night. And I opened up with a very broad joke about the woman that was standing on the corner in London with her dress up over her hat. 
And a fella said, lady, you're getting your legs all wet. She says, I don't care. My legs are 50 years old, but the hat's brand new. And they laughed at that. They, they seemed to want the broad humor. They wanted something to make them forget what had just happened. As February 1944 got underway, the Soviet Leningrad Front was fighting a heavy ground war against the German 18th Army in Estonia. The battle would last the entire month, with the Soviets eventually winning. French resistance unified under the French forces of the interior. The Germans won the Battle of Cisterna in Italy against the Allied army. But at that point, four months before the Normandy invasion, the Allies kept pushing into Italy. Meanwhile, the Battle of Admin Box began in the Burma campaign, with Japanese forces attempting to counterattack an Allied offensive, trying to draw Allied reserves from the Central Front in Assam, where the Japanese were preparing their own major offense. On the morning of Saturday, February 5th, 1944, at 7 a.m. Eastern Wartime, the NBC World News Roundup signed on from WEAF in New York. Good morning, friends. This is Lloyd Burlingham reminding you of the service offered you by Skelly Oil Company, Skelly Jobbers, Dealers, and your own Skelly Tank Station Man. Alex Dreyer is here with a summary of world news, supplementing his complete reports to you Monday through Friday. I want to talk on the perils of prosperity. And we'll bring you the story of this week's winner of the Skelly Agricultural Achievement Award. Now, Alex Dreyer. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The Germans, throwing heavy reserves of men and machines at the Allied lines below Rome, have again been smashed back. Four assaults in all, constituting the long-awaited full-scale German counterattack, have snapped under the concentration of Allied power. Our beachhead is now two weeks old, during which time we have advanced an average of about six miles inland. The width of that beachhead is around 20 miles. In that area, just south of the Italian capital, some of the bitterest battles of the Italian campaign are raging. The Germans are determined to make us pay heavily for every yard of advance. The Battle of Italy is to them more than just another campaign. The Nazis look upon our thrust in Italy as the placing of the first allied nail in Hitler coffin. And they're right. Just 45 miles to the southeast of our beachhead, Anglo-American forces wedged in between mountains are dislodging Nazis from almost every conceivable kind of pillbox and foxhole. But they are being dislodged. Here in this casino area, German resistance is just as bitter farther to the north. There is the definite realization on the part of the German that his fight must be a prolonged one. Emphasizing that German attitude is the fact that Field Marshal Kesselring, Nazi commander in Italy, is in the field with his men. Behind the cellar to cellar to advance, in which the enemy is being dynamited out of fortified buildings, there are the casualties, hitting both sides equally hard. We are losing men, and not just a few men. And the deeper we attempt to penetrate Hitler's fortress, irrespective of what side we may elect to attack, we will be unable to escape that mounting toll of dead, missing, and wounded. The Italian campaign is an intensely difficult struggle, this irrespective of the fact that we have the Germans in some respects on the run. We are advancing, but at a relatively stiff price. Since our invasion of Italy, we have taken more than 10,000 German prisoners. Their arrogance is largely gone, but not their belief in Hitler. As the Nazis desperately try to encircle our forces below Rome, they say they've already done so, German units in Russia's Ukraine are waging a losing struggle in their attempt...
to break out of a Soviet ring of steel. On the date of this broadcast, Allied powers were slowly inching into Western Europe, with the body count mounting, while Soviet forces captured cities in Ukraine. Overnight on February 6th into the 7th, Soviet bombers attacked Helsinki, the heaviest bombing of the Finnish capital since the war began. Meanwhile, a growing border dispute between Poland and Russia caused President Roosevelt to step in, asking Stalin not to allow it to undermine future international cooperation. Roosevelt proposed that the Polish Prime Minister accept the desired territorial changes and then be allowed to alter the makeup of his government without any interference from foreign pressure. With the thought of having created another Stalingrad in the making. Captured German field telegrams reveal that the trap divisions, asking what to do now, have been told to save their necks, and that is all. Well, the German high command appears to be short on advice. Berlin propagandists, again working overtime, are now telling the German people that there is the prospect of an imminent Allied invasion in the West. And that is why the German army is suffering reverses in the East. The double-talking Nazis are obviously beginning to confuse themselves. The steady rumble of Allied planes overhead is adding measurably to that confusion. Already this morning, large formations of Allied bombers with strong fighter escort shot across the channel. That large force, making its fourth consecutive daylight smash, appears to be on the same scale of those which have blasted Wilhelmshaven and Frankfurt in the past two days. Last night, Britain's mosquitoes were busy at the task of stinging the Germans again. In the Battle of the Marshals in the Central Pacific, our Marines and Army infantrymen have swept up another batch of islets in the Kwajalein Atoll. The end of enemy resistance on Kwajalein Island itself appears to be but a matter of hours. Admiral Nimitz has already instituted a government of occupation for all of the Marshall Islands. This is the first time since the Spanish-American War that American forces alone have seized enemy territory. Here at home, the Senate will meet today either to provide swift approval or a slow death for the hopes of our fighting forces for a voice in the elections next fall. By the time the fall rolls around, there will be around 11 million persons in uniform. The people in uniform want to vote. Of that, there is no doubt. And if anyone has the right to vote, it is the man or woman shaping our nation's destiny on the fighting fronts of this global struggle. And now... Here's Lloyd Burlingham with the vital news from the farm front. A month ago, I read an article in Country Gentleman titled Perils of Prosperity. Perils of Prosperity. That's something all of us in this farming business can face bravely, I thought. At least we'd like to take the chance. And so I filed what Lloyd Partain had written as something to be concerned about a long time from now, if ever. Now I'm not so sure. Wartime needs stretched agricultural production. The U.S. not only had to feed its own civilian and military population, but many of the Allies relied on America's breadbasket. In addition, German U-boats sank hundreds of food-laden ships bound for Britain. Canned fruits and vegetables were rationed starting March 1, 1943. Less canned goods meant less civilian tin use and less strain on the heavily taxed rail and road systems. Even as early as 1941, civilians were encouraged to grow their own produce to supplement their food. These were referred to as victory gardens. The Department of Agriculture produced pamphlets to guide urban and suburban gardeners. 
Magazines and newspapers published helpful articles, and patriotic posters urged participation. All expenses for living, interest, taxes, everything are subtracted is between five and six billion dollars. In the Pacific Northwest state of Oregon, wartime farm labor shortages led to the creation of the U.S. Crop Corps in 1943. It umbrellaed labor services like the Women's Land Army and the Victory Farm Volunteers. The latter was a group that got parental consent to employ youths aged 11 to 17. Migrant workers from Mexico also helped, made possible thanks to the joint U.S.-Mexican Braquero program. By 1944, farmers could request help from POW laborers held at Oregon Army camps. More than 3,500 prisoners, mostly Germans, worked in Oregon fields. Partain proposes that, so far as it can be managed, this is the time to afford conveniences and improvements for the farm home, also to get set for such future expenses as doctor and hospital bills and college training for the children. He recommends insurance and urges buying war loan bonds. One of the chief perils of our current farm prosperity, as seen by the writer, and a million farmers will agree with him promptly, is that of buying land at too high a price. The article ends there, and it leaves the question, shall I buy a farm now or add to the acres I already own, with an answer which is a question. Before you put money in land, he suggests you figure out the answer to this one. Will this land make good for me when prices on farms are 50% of what they are today? Well, I still prefer the perils of a 1943 net income on farms of $12.5 billion to those of another kind which flooded farm homes when net income was down to $2 billion. But I'm glad to have gone back to Partain's very useful warnings. It is important that we prove ourselves as capable economists in times of prosperity, as we have in the past when the going was tough. Well, Lloyd, I think I could face the perils of prosperity and be pretty brave about it. But I've seen the aftermath of such inflation as America's never known. I'm no farm expert, but booming land prices bringing on inflation in agriculture could do a great deal of harm. One of Lloyd Partain's suggestions fits right in with the need to take special care of farm motors and equipment. Buying replacement and repairs where necessary and where possible, and keeping every machine new and old in the best possible condition. That's a good investment of money in any kind of times. This season, there's special advantage to you in using the service offered you by your Skelly tank station man or Skelly jobber. See him for high-quality Skelly gasoline, tractor fuels, kerosene and fortified tagaline heavy-duty motor oils and greases. Skelly Lubrication conserves motors. Your Skell gas dealer has bottled gas in steel cylinders for cooking, heating water, and refrigeration beyond the gas mains. Well more than a century ago, a pioneer set his plow in the virgin Hawkeye soil at, at Iowa City and headed his yoke of oxen north and east toward the Mississippi. His furrow set the course for the old military road, angling across the gently rolling prairies to Dubuque. Near where the oxen crossed the Cedar River, a stagecoach stop, known as St. Mary's, was set up. The traffic flowing along the road these very many years has not changed more in the shift from oxen to today's cars and trucks than as the stagecoach stop became famous as Wayside Farm. Fine shorthorn cattle were bred there. Always a stock farm, 
You'll find it easiest now by asking in Mount Vernon for right. That isn't the name, not officially. Milo Walrob is too modest for that. When he does so dignify the 271 acres he rents, the name will likely be Chapel View Farm. For from an east window, you can look across to the old chapel building of Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Milo and Mary Walrob are partners in maintaining the proudest traditions of old St. Mary's. Their helpers are Joan, Ten, Mike, Six, and Vincent, Four. Starting from scratch, the Walrobs have built up a substantial farm business so that now, with no other help than 19-year-old George Cadlick, they produce great quantities of food, serve their community well, and do a fine job of living. Crops in 1943 included 90 acres of corn to be stepped up to 170 this year, 15 acres of soybeans, 50 this year, 15 of oats, and 30 of hay. 150 hogs marketed totaled 18 tons of pork. 400 hens provided over 4,500 dozen eggs and 600 birds were sold. 150 head of beef cattle are fed annually. That calls for a lot of work. And Mary Walrob keeps her house, cares for the three youngsters, drives the tractor in rush times, hauls feed with the truck, and keeps the records on the excellent herds of purebred Berkshires and Angus. Berkshires are the Walrob's biggest business. They started with crossbreds, using Berkshire boars on Duroc sows. From there, they worked into registered Berkshires, starting with a $200 sow selected most carefully. And now there are Berks all over the place, good ones. The Angus herd is founded on two heifers that Milo Walrob raised as a 4-H clubber. The main cattle project so far is Hereford Feeders. This is a hustling, bustling, go-ahead place where food production in the greatest possible quantities is the thing. Yet there's time for outside interests. Milo Walrob was a 4-H club leader for six years. He works with the Farm Bureau and the Angus and Berkshire Associations and with Mrs. Walrob is active in the Lisbon Catholic Church. The Walrobs, beside prodigious service on the food front, have helped in bond and scrap metal drives. Now today, in recognition of this very fine record, the Committee of Awards declares Milo Walrob winner of the Skelly Agricultural Achievement Award. Well, Lloyd, I'd like to add my congratulations to those of the committee commending the Walrobs, Milo, Mary, Joan, Mike, and Vincent. And you know, Lloyd, someday I'd like to see Chapel View Farm. Thank you, Alex. I wish you could. I will. That's my home stamping ground. This morning at the farm, personal representatives of Mr. Skelly will present the Agricultural Achievement Award to Milo Walrob. The award including a $100 war bond, a colorful achievement pennant, a gold lapel pin, and a beautiful scroll. Next Saturday at this same time, another W.G. Skelly Agricultural Achievement Award will be made. Meantime... Take advantage of the service offered you by your Skelly tank station man. He'd like to be of help to you. He can make your motors last longer and serve you better. He's a good man to know. Listen, Lloyd, you really think you can fix it up for me to see that farm? Well, Alex, I think I can. That's out near where I grew up. I'll be glad to take you to a really good farm. Because that's what I need is a farm. <laughs> that's what we'll get you. Folks, listen to Alex Dreyer in the next uh, uh, news analysis of day all through this next week, Monday through Friday. This is Lloyd Burlingham saying goodbye now until 
next Saturday. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Right now, experience New York City like you've never before. The speculation is out of control. Yes, sir. The whole economy is going to collapse. Gentlemen, gentlemen. Will you make the right deal? Memories are short in New York. If you don't make a fortune, someone else will. I know you've been bringing rosemary into port illegally. I have eyes and ears and noses and... <laughs> Tongues everywhere. Or fall to greed. If I was caught with diamonds at any time, any time, my sister and I would have been gang raped and murdered. I do this for you. Well, look at what we got here, bricked up. Looks like we caught as a dandy and a whore, all alone on South Street with nowhere to hide. Ain't that right, boys? But whatever you choose. There's a choice. You just always make the same choice, the one for yourself. Just make sure you get out in time. Lord, have mercy on us all. Out now on your favorite podcast app. Burning Gotham. The 2022 Tribeca Select audio soap opera. About the fastest growing city in the world. And the opportunists who shaped it. To find out more, go to burninggotham.com. You were part of a pretty strong lineup on yes, Tuesday, Tuesday night. Yes, Tuesday night was... Comedy was a, night, wasn't that's it? That's right. Bob Hope, and then mm. Fibber McGee, yeah. and Bob then... Bob Hope came in a little later. Red Skelton, Skelton was in there. Uh-huh. Then later, Ozzie and Harriet, and Amos and Andy, mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. From Hollywood, California, and on a live base somewhere in Australia, Autolite brings you Everything for the Boys, the Command Theater of the Air, starring Mr. Ronald Coleman. His guest, Miss Greer Garson. Everything for the Boys is presented by the Electric Autolite Company and its 22 great manufacturing plants. Builders of precision equipment for 35 years. World famous for Autolite spark plugs, batteries, wire, cable, and electrical systems for automotive, aviation, and marine use. Your host, Mr. Ronald Coleman. Thank you and good evening. In these intense days when time is a precious thing to all of us, our request play for tonight is especially interesting. For Mr. Balderson's play, Barclay Square, concerns itself with time in that amazing, mysterious rush of seconds which separate us from yesterday and tomorrow. Now, two young American soldier heroes are waiting for this broadcast at a fighting base somewhere in Australia. And my good friend, Greer Garson, and I will speak directly to them by special overseas radio. But first... We bring you this radio dramatization by Archobala. To the men and women of the United States Army stationed in Australia, we dedicate this half hour. (laughs) 
Stout hearts in men and machines win wars. Men who are not afraid to die. If you'd have tuned your radio to NBC's New York flagship, WEAF, at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, February 8, 1944, you'd have heard Ronald Coleman host the Autolite-sponsored Everything for the Boys. The guest star was Greer Garson. Combined ingenuity and skill can invent and build. It will give our boys every advantage over the enemy. NBC owned the ratings on Tuesdays with six of the top seven shows. Opposite of Everything for the Boys, CBS ran a concert. WOR Mutual ran news, and WJZ of the Blue Network ran The Girl Back Home. Barkley Square is a fantasy play about a man who desires so much to go back in time that he somehow achieves it. Spark plugs and electrical systems make up the electrical lifeline in thousands of tanks, jeeps, trucks, and boats. On the fighting front, the name Autolite stands for dependability. And just as Autolite starts something on every front, so here at home, you can count on Autolite spark plugs and batteries to help your car go the duration. Ask one of the thousands of Autolite service stations, your car dealer or serviceman, to help you care for your car for your country. The play, Barclay Square. The players, Mr. Ronald Coleman, and his guest of the evening, Miss Greer Garson. Before the curtain rises, let me extend the congratulations of all of us to Miss Garson, who yesterday was nominated as an Academy candidate for her splendid work in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's picture, Madame Curie. And now, on with our play. Have you ever hated this time in which you live? Have you ever said to yourself, why was I born into these blood-stained years? Why couldn't I have lived out my life in the peace and quiet of another time? To you who have cried out these words from a burdened heart, we bring the story of Peter Standish. It began in this house in Barclay Square. All my life I had hated the turmoil and the tensions of this century they call the 20th. So when a relative of mine left me this place, I came here from America and moved in thankful for the mellowed silence of these old walls. For this house was exactly as it had been in the 18th century when he had built it. This ancestor, whose name was Peter Standish, just as mine is. But his life had been in the quiet graciousness of the 18th century, and mine... War. 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 Again and again, I said to myself, if I could only go back to his time, those leisurely wonderful days of that other Peter Standish. If I could only go back. Those very words were in my mind as I sat here reading his diary. The pages were yellow, the ink faded, yet what he wrote in 1784 was more real to me than my own world outside. It was a diary that began with his arrival here from America to visit his cousin, Lady Anne Pettigrew, and her daughters, Catherine and Helen. On that day in October of 1784, he had climbed the steps to this house in Barclay Square and opened the door to the clean, fresh world of those days. I read the words, and suddenly... the words of his diary began to move in front of my eyes. The walls of the room began to lift and fall. I couldn't see. I couldn't think. What was happening to me? And suddenly, there was a voice, a woman's voice. I bid you welcome, Cousin Peter. 
A woman, tall, lovely, standing there. I trust you had a swift passage from the colonies. Passage? The colonies? What did she mean? My sister Kate and my mother will be pleased indeed to know that you are here. All of us have been waiting for you. What a dreary voyage it must have been on that packet. Twenty-seven days at sea. And then I knew what I had wanted so intensely had happened. Time had moved back. I was that other Peter Standish. I was living his life in the 18th century. Welcome. Ten thousand welcomes, dear, dear cousin. You are uh, Lady Anne? Why, of course. Your, your servant, ma'am. Of course, you've met your cousin Helen. Yes, yes, we have oh, met. Do not be so forward, Helen, dear. She's lovely. Yes. And now may I present dear Catherine? I bid you welcome. Why do you look at me like that? Oh, I, I just remembered. According to the diary, you are my betrothed. Diary? Betrothed? I vow you are the most abrupt man. You have not even asked Mother's permission to pay your addresses. Indeed you haven't. No, but it's practically all been arranged. As I remember, uh, the settlement was to be 15,000 pounds, wasn't it? Oh, but, but we never wrote you. I mean, we talked about it here, but we never... Mother! Oh, there's no reason to be disturbed. According to what I remember, uh, we are going to get married and have three children. What? And one of them dies of smallpox at the age of seven and is buried in St. Mark's churchyard. Mother! Mr. Standish, what a horrible thing to say. Mother, Catherine, don't you understand? Mr. Standish is not well. He is but newly disembarked, and doubtless he is very fatigued. Cousin Standish, may I show you to your room? Thank you very much for helping me out. Why did you say what you said to them? Oh, please. Don't ask me. If you wish. Thank you. You know, as soon as I saw you, I, I knew that you were someone who... I mean, you will help me, won't you? How can I help you? Well, it's all so strange. Strange? Yes, I, I've thought about this so much, and now that I'm really here... Why... you look at me like that? I don't know. <laughs> Is there anything strange about me? It was raining outside when you came in, yet neither your cloak nor your boots were wet. Who are you? Where do you come from? Why, I'm your cousin, Peter Standish. I, I've just arrived here from America. Of course, to marry my sister Catherine. Yes, to marry p.m. the Ginny Sims show took to the air. That month, the show's rating was 14.6. Roughly 11 million people tuned in. Opposite CBS aired Big Town. WOR aired The Black Castle. Well, WJZ aired News. These men who conquer twice, who meet the arms and armor of their sullen foes and conquering once, deal more than one defeat. Who stricken rise to strike still braver blows. 
Who are these champions of the second start? The steadfast wearers of the Purple Heart. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an excited and privileged moment for all of us in the studio here tonight. Every week at this time, we're going to present the thrilling and inspiring stories of our men of war who fell in battle and stood up again. You'll know their gallantry in the face of the enemy and in the face of life, for these will be the men who wear the splendid emblem that America gives to those who suffer wounds in battle for her. They're the men who wear the Purple Heart. You'll hear their stories, and you'll hear them. But now, by way of proving that the accent is on life and the pursuit of happiness, may I give you the happy and lively... Would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a mule? A mule is an animal with long, funny ears. He kicks up at anything he hears. His back is brawny, but his brain is weak. He's just plain stupid with a stubborn streak. And by the way, if you hate to go to school, you may grow up to be a mule. Or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a pig? A pig is an animal with dirt on his face. His shoes are a terrible disgrace. He's got no manners when he eats his food. He's fat and lazy and extremely rude. But if you don't care a feather or a fig, you may go up to be a pig. Or would you like to swing on a star, carry moonbeams home in a jar, and be better off than you are? Or would you rather be a fish? <laughs> a fish won't do anything but swim in a brook. He can't write his name or read a book. To fool the people is his only thought. And though he's slippery, he still gets caught. And then if that sort of life is what you wish, you may grow up to be a fish. And all the monkeys aren't in the zoo. Every day you meet quite a few. So you see, it's all up to you. You can be better than you are. You could be swinging on a star. Be better than you are. Keep swinging on a star. England was behind in the summer darkness. England in the dark channel. The channel secretly alive with ships and men and the implements of vengeance. Gone too was the great transport plane. Only the darkness remained and Sergeant John G. Rooney's parachute floating above him as he sank down silently to the French earth. France below. Invasion below. This is it. This is it. 
This is it. This is it. Out of the sky over Mare St. Eglise, paratrooper John Rooney swung and floated, his comrades around him in the night. Earthward. Earthward. Then... What are you thinking, Sergeant John Mooney, as the tracer bullets fly? What are your thoughts as you swim down the long channel of the sky? Tracer bullets. There go some of the boys limping their harness. They're hit. They're hit, and I'm sorry and mad. Curtains for the kids. I want to get down there and put those machine guns out of business. I don't like them. I'm against them. I'm anti-machine gun. Put them out before the glider infantry arrives. That's the ticket. Punch it with your Tommy gun, Johnny G. Rooney. Yes. Yes, are you okay? Oh, fine, fine. I'm fine. Let's shoot somebody. Look, we gotta knock out those two German machine guns on the ridge. Sure. Let's knock the Hitlers on the head, huh? We've gotta use grenades. Ain't nothing of it. I can get them free. I know a fella. Okay. You ready? Ready, Chief. All right, keep low. Come on. Sergeant Rooney flips his grenade at the astonished Hitlers. <laughs> Private Yus Rosen lets fly his grenade. Later, their friends crouch at a roadside, waiting for Nazi cars to roll by. I can't wait for them to roll over those mines we planted. <laughs> Some prank, ain't it? Quiet. Here comes a car now. Rooney, I'll match you for the tires. Shut up. At 8.30 p.m., NBC aired A Date with Judy, a female-driven situation comedy starring Louise Erickson. Opposite CBS ran the Judy Canova show, while WJZ aired Duffy's Tavern, and WOR ran the quiz show, Battle of the Burrows. This was the most competitive time slot as far as ratings went. In February, a date with Judy pulled a 9.6, while the Judy Canova show pulled a 12.6, and Duffy's Tavern had a 14.6. Louise Erickson was three weeks shy of her 16th birthday. She held the role until 1949. The series was popular enough that, in response, CBS developed Meet Corliss Archer. Famous quick relief from acid indigestion presents A Date with Judy. Hello? Judy, could I have a date for Saturday night? Well, you certainly could. I'm a little short on gas, so I wonder if you'd mind meeting me at Peterson's Drugstore. We'll have a soda, and then we can go someplace. Uh, wonderful. Okay. I'll meet you in front of the drugstore at about 7.30. Uh, don't be late. Goodbye. Goodbye. Who is that, Judy? Jeepers, I forgot to ask. <laughs> Well, that's Judy, folks. Judy Foster, the cutest date in town. And your date with her each Tuesday at the same time is arranged by the makers of Tums, famous quick relief for acid indigestion. Well, now we pick up Judy and her 12-year-old brother, Randolph, in a department store where they're trying to find a present for their parents' anniversary. Randolph? 
Randolph, how do you think Mother and Father would like a ping-pong table? I don't know how they'd like it, but I'd like it. <laughs> this isn't your anniversary, Randolph. Um, how do you think they'd like a set of books? They have a set of books. Oh, Randolph, I know just the thing. Oh, Randolph, this will simply be terrific. We'll buy Mother and Father some Frank Sinatra records. Oh, that'll be just dandy. Then for your birthday, Father can give you a box of cigars and a nice smoking jacket. I think it was terribly mean of you not to let me buy Father and Mother the Sinatra records. Yeah, and after us spending a whole hour listening to them, too. It was a lovely morning, wasn't it, Randall? Yeah, but we still haven't got an anniversary present. Well, maybe this next door will have something we... Hey, look, Randolph. What? Look what's playing at the Bijou this week. Two big feature attractions, one newsreel, one short, one Mickey Mouse, one serial, and a stage show. Well, that's a nice way to spend a week. <laughs> Randolph, I finally figured out a solution to all our problems. Instead of buying father and mother a present, let's take them to the show. You know, have a theater party. Okay, we'll invite all our friends and Randolph. Remember, we have only $3 to spend on their anniversary. How much are the tickets? 55 cents, as usual. Well, then we could buy... Let me see now. 55 and the $3 goes... Oh, we could buy five tickets, and we still have 25 cents left over. Enough for five people and a midget. <laughs> oh, Randolph, look what the features are. Hep, Cat, Katie, and Jumping Jive. You know, Randolph, I know who'd really enjoy this bill the most. Judy, we are not going to invite any of your friends. This party is for mother and father. Well, you can't deny it. Oogie Pringle and his hot licks would love this bill. Oh, I don't know. Look at that cereal. The Mystery Cowboy Rides Again. Some of my gang would be crazy about it. You can get them in at 15 cents a throw. So much the worse. Randolph, in this occasion, I think it's up to both of us to act purely unselfishly and only think of mother and father. She spends the whole morning quivering over Frank Sinatra and suddenly she gets unselfish. <laughs> Come on, Randolph. Let's go home and tell mother. Boy, wait till she sit through Hepcat Katie and Jumping Jive tonight. She'll be sorry she ever got married. Hello, Melvin. Why, Dora, what are you doing downtown at this time of the day? Well, I was on my way to the Red Cross, and I thought I'd drop by the office for a moment. Well, good. Uh, sit down, dear. Thanks. Melvin. I just wanted to tell you that I think we have the sweetest children in the whole world. Huh? Guess what they've done. I can't possibly. <laughs> they've arranged a theater party in our honor. They have? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, what's the occasion, dear? Oh, Melvin. What's the date today? Uh, February 22nd. Well, doesn't that mean anything to you? I see. Oh, of course. Oh, then you did remember. It's Washington's birthday. <laughs> why, Melvin Foster, I don't know why I ever married you. Well, uh, oh, 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 it's our anniversary. Yeah. Oh, I'll bet you actually thought I'd forgotten it. <laughs> uh, now, Melvin, don't try and pretend. Well, I did not forget it, Dora. You'll see when I get home. Mm. Oh, Dora. I just remembered I can't go to the theater tonight. Well, why not, dear? I'm expecting Mr. Gibbons here any minute. I've simply got to get that tomato canning contract from him, and I'm going to have to do some fast talking. He's on the verge of signing with the deluxe people. Oh, Melvin. Well, the children will be brokenhearted. They picked a show they think we especially want to see. Well, it is sweet of them, but 
I don't know what I can do. It's such an important contract, I'd hate to lose it. Say, Melvin, I have an idea. How would it be if we asked Mr. Gibbons to go along with us? Well, I don't know, Dora. Ask him if Mr. Gibbons spends an evening with your delightful family. I'll bet you'll get your contract. Well, I'll ask him when he comes in. I'd hate to let the kids down. No, oh, I know you would, dear. And Melvin. Yes, Dora? I think I have the sweetest husband in the world, too. Oh, oh you do, do you? <laughs> yes, I do. Well, goodbye, dear. I'll see you this evening. Goodbye, Dora. Yes, Mr. Foster? Uh, Miss Watson, get the royal flowers shop on the phone and have them fix up an extra special bunch of flowers for me. I'll pick them up on my way home. It's our anniversary. And you know I never forget anniversaries. <laughs> I didn't know you had someone in your office. Oh, that's all right. Come right in, kids. Uh, Mr. Gibbons, this is my daughter, Judy, and my son, Randolph. Well, how do you do? Hello, Mr. Gibbons. I've met your daughter before, Foster. I think she's a friend of my son, Willie. Oh, yes, of course. Willie and I are very good friends. In fact, she was that way about him from September 1st to September 3rd of last year. <laughs> that way? You know, she was making him her hobby. Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, children, uh, I think you'd better be running along now. Uh, Mr. Gibbons and I have some business to discuss. But, Father, we haven't told you what we came for yet. On account of this being your anniversary... And Mother's, too, naturally. <laughs> yes, your mother's told me all about it. And I think it's very thoughtful of you kids to give a theater party in our honor. And you know what? I've asked Mr. Gibbons here to join us. Uh, Foster, I told you I don't think I can make it. You see, I want to make up my mind about that contract tonight. Oh, Mr. Gibbons, you've got to come. If you don't, Father won't. And if he doesn't come, it'll spoil Mother's evening. Of course, we could fix Mother up with Oogie Pringle. No. No, I don't think it's fair that Mother has to have a blind date in her anniversary. She really ought to be with Father. <laughs> Are they serious? Would they really fix your wife up with a, a blind date for Oh, no, no, they're just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> hey, you know children. Mr. Gibbons, you simply can't let Mother down like this. Well, I'm sorry, but I don't think I ought to oh, take the... Oh, come on, Gibbons. A little relaxation be good for you. Well... Please, Mr. Gibbons. We can afford you, you know. It isn't as though you'd have to buy your own ticket. Uh, well, all right. Sir. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, well, it's all settled then. Fine. And now, now, run along, kids. Uh, goodbye. Bye, Father. Bye, Mr. Gibbons. Bye, Father. Goodbye. <sighs> this younger generation. Oh, I don't know. I think they're all pretty swell kids. Well, I wish I thought so. This jazz craze of theirs. I believe it's called Jeeve. Hmm? No, no, Jive. Jive, oh. Jive. Now, whatever it's called, I hate it. In my day, music was music. Now, take Victor Herbert. There was a man who knew how to write music, had a melody. But this modern stuff... Uh, now, about this little deal about... Bobby socks uh, and sloppy Joe sweaters. I don't know how the boys of this generation stand the girls of this generation, Foster. Well, now, Judy's a sweet... Every girl. time my son Willie brings one of them home, I just gape in wonder. Uh, <clears throat> uh, well, no matter what the deluxe people claim, I still know I can give you an all-around bad and deal... And that Frank Sinatra. Can you understand anything like that, Foster? Well, I don't know now. Judy's crazy about him. All the kids are. Now, believe me, my Willie isn't interested in this mooner-cooner stuff. Tomatoes, that's a thing. He's going to follow right in my footsteps. In tomatoes? In tomatoes. <laughs> On the radio, the way we did it, there was no door, there was nothing. The 
the man piled this stuff up on a stepladder way up to the ceiling, and then on a cue, he'd knock it over. It couldn't have been pictured the way we actually did it. <laughs> I think no that matter. was one of the great trademarks of the Fibber McGee and Molly show, the, uh, the hall closet. And the uh, strange thing about it was that, especially in the last five, seven, eight years that we did it, we would do that as many as three times a year. That's all. And, and everybody that ever says anything about Fibber McGee and Molly now, they always think of the closet, and they think that Fibber McGee and Molly was a closet, you know? <laughs> And it's the truth that we wouldn't do it over two or three times in a year. Imagine you felt that. that the gag was wearing thin. We didn't want it to wear thin. We yeah. wanted to keep it alive as long as we possibly could. And sure. we talked about it and did keep it alive. Yeah. But we wouldn't actually do it. Boy, we'd have a big meeting about whether to do it or not. After the Mole Mystery Theater aired at 9 p.m., the three top-rated shows on radio aired in succession, beginning with the Just Heard Jim Jordan, co-starring in Fibber McGee and Molly. The February 8th episode was called Homemade Ice Cream and had a rating of 35.7. More than 27 million people tuned in. <laughs> the Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. The makers of Johnson's Wax for home and industry present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. It began Friday. Mm -hmm. What would you do? Would you be working with Don Quinn, going yes. over his uh, material? Oh, we'd meet on Friday, and then we would meet again Saturday, and we would meet Sunday. That was just with us and the writers, you see. And then on Monday, the cast would come in, and we'd have a reading, and then they'd go back to work, and we'd take it on Tuesday morning again. The building of the show and everything, of course, was all done beforehand. How many uh, rehearsals would you have Two. Was one a dress rehearsal? Yes, we'd have a dress on Tuesday about noontime. Would you have an audience for that? No. Uh, no. It wasn't necessary to gauge where no. the laps were going to fall and, mm -mm. and so on. That's right. What? If they didn't fall, it was too bad. <laughs> they didn't always, believe me. And for uh, most of the time then, from 39 on, the show originated from always. the Hollywood studios. Always. Leather and rubber. And here again, the wax is used for protection of vital materials. You might be interested to know that even paints were developed that actually contain wax, called Johnson's Wax-Fortified Paints. During the war, these have been greatly restricted, but they will again be available for industry, institutions, and products after the war. It's partly your use of Johnson's wax on floors, furniture, and woodwork that has led to this increased usefulness of wax in war. When Pop was a kid and had a yen for some ice cream, he could jolly well spend the afternoon turning the crank of the freezer. And now with the drugstores so short of congealed cow juice, we find history repeating itself in the kitchen of 79 Wistful Vista, the home of Fibber McGee and Molly. I say that thing makes too much noise. Oh. Don't you think it ought to be about done? 
What day? I say, don't you think it's about frozen? Wait a minute, I can't hear you. What'd you say? <laughs> I say, don't you think it's nearly frozen by now? My gosh, it ought to be. I've been cranking this thing for three hours. I know, dear. You must be... What are you waving your hand at me for? I'm not waving it. It's doing that by itself. <laughs> I haven't turned that freezer so long, even my wristwatch has got a dizzy look on its face. <laughs> well, you're the one who wanted the ice cream, sweetheart. Ah, why can't I control my appetites? Must be the beast in me. Whew, boy, am I tired. Well, I didn't make you turn that freezer, McGee. You wanted some ice cream, and the drugstore's always out of it, so I just said, why don't you make some? Yeah, it's a good thing I didn't get hungry for some rope for cheese. <laughs> You'd have suggested I go out and milk a goat. <laughs> now, look, dearie, don't blame me yeah, now. I know, I know. I brought it on myself. I know. I just got a sudden urge for a chocolate sundae or something. Gee whiz, I don't know why. Hey, what, what are you going to do? I'm going to put on my apron and turn that freezer for a while. I'm getting hungry for some ice cream myself. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll do it, Molly, huh? I'm rested now. Well, I just... Assumed. No, 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 no. This is man's work. I wonder where I could get a man. <laughs> you know, it should have been frozen long ago. Are you sure you followed the instructions? Sure I did. Well, you got me all puckered up for a chocolate sundae now. Are you sure the drugstore hasn't got any ice cream? Mm, practically certain. Well, I wish you'd call them and see just on the off chance, you know. Okay. And if they haven't got any, I can go back to cranking this doggone blister factory. Hand me the phone. Here. Thanks. Hello, operator. Give me Kramer's Drugstore on the corner of 14th and... Oh, is that you, Mert? Oh, dear. <laughs> How's every little thing, Mert? <laughs> What's that, Mert? Oh, my gosh. That was tough luck, wasn't it? Oh, dear. Went flat right in front of the post office, eh? Mert's tire? No, Mert's sister. She was singing at a bond rally. <laughs> What's that, Mert? Okay, I'll try again later. Well, thanks anyway, Mert. Drugstore don't answer. Say, let's go down there and see if they have any ice cream. Ah, now you're talking. That's a deal, Tootsie. <laughs> Maybe when this darn thing finds itself all alone in the house, it'll get the cold chills or something. Well, I'll go get my hat and purse now. You lock the back door. Okay. Ah, there goes a good kid. Just going to the drugstore because she knows I want some ice cream. Well, looks like it's my duty to get my cutie patootie some tutti fruity. Personally, <laughs> don't see why... Come in. Oh, hi there, little girl. How do you do it? Do what, mister? How do you figure out just when the most inconvenient time will be to drop in here? Why? Huh? Hmm? What? Sure. Sure what? Hmm? Doggone it, sis! <laughs> Make it snappy, will you? Mrs. McGee and I are going down to the drugstore. What was it you wanted? You know what, mister? Know what? I just joined the Boy Scouts a little while ago. You what? I just joined the Boy Scouts, I bet you. Gee, they're swell. Yeah, but now, wait a minute. Did you know that this is their 34th anniversary, mister? Hmm, did you? Hmm? Is it really? 34th? But you're a girl. How did they ever manage... Well, I've always wanted to join the Boy Scouts because my brother was a Boy Scout, and now he's in the Marines, and I bet you he'd be glad to know I joined the Boy Scouts on their 34th anniversary, I bet you. Doggone it, sis. Don't talk nonsense. Hmm? I said, don't talk nonsense. The Boy Scouts only include boys. You couldn't join. I bet you I did, though, I bet you. Now, wait a minute, sis. They I told... were on a hike, and, and they went past our house, and I joined them for 10 or 12 blocks, I bet you. <laughs> and I said, I said, what patrol are you, boys? And one of them said, we're badgers. Mm -hmm. And I said, merit badgers, and that just laid there, so... <laughs> 
And then the Scoutmaster sent me home. Yeah. None too soon, either. <laughs> Seeing as I used to be a Scoutmaster myself, I'm going to send you home. Go on, sis, beat it, will you? You got time to hear my poem first, mister, that I wrote for school? Is it short? Sure. Shoot. Okay. I call it, There Was an Old Lady Who Lived in a Shoe. Oh, let's hear that. I always get a honk out of Mother Goose. Hmm? What'd you Give say? It. Go ahead. Okay. There was an old lady who lived in a shoe. With the housing situation, she was very lucky, too. So you can just imagine how her blood ran cold when she heard some nasty gossip that the place was half sold. <laughs> After Fibber, McGee, and Molly signed off, Bob Hope's Pepsin and program signed on at 10 p.m. You've been with him for a long, long time. I sure right? have. I've been with him. This is my... Well, I started with him in 1938. I was about that high. And I've really enjoyed it. And I've built a nice little estate. I've had a couple of homes. I have raised four children. And we've had enough to eat and all because I saw one of the Sarnoffs coming out of that motel. <laughs> Finally, it comes out. An entire career resting on a little thing like that. That's amazing. Have you ever been fired? I mean, like... Fired? Like, yeah. yeah, I've been fired. Yeah? Well, I haven't been fired, actually, but I've been... Uh, was I fired? Has oh, it, I must have been, yeah. In, in vaudeville or anything? Did they ever come back and say, that's it? You know, well, I told you about the, the, the Franklin thing. Oh, yeah. B.S. Uh, I mean, Moss's Franklin. That was the same thing. Cancel you? Worse than being fired. They weren't polite about it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I've, been, I've had my option dropped by Paramount, you know. I was there 19 years, and then they didn't pick up my option the after last time. After all those road time. pictures? Yeah, that's right. After the whole thing, they changed management and everything, you know. Yeah. They didn't pick up my option the way I wanted it picked up. And I'll tell you, man, that's a terrible feeling after being in a place 19 years and you walk out. Because I was pretty well entrenched there, you know. It wasn't that way the first uh, month I was there. In fact, they had... Uh, they had my name on the uh, dressing room door in chalk. And they had a guy walking up and down in front with a sponge in his hand. On Tuesday, February 8th, 1944, at 10 p.m. Eastern Time over WEAF, and at 7 p.m. Pacific Time over KFI, Bob Hope's Pepsi and program signed on live, coast to coast from Oceanside, California. The guest was Ginger Rogers. The program featured a salute to her new film, Lady in the Dark. It was radio's top show, pulling a rating that month of 36.2. Nearly 28 million people heard this show, which is even more impressive when you consider how many were overseas fighting World War II. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day. See your dentist twice a year. Again this week, the Pepsodent Company presents another in a series of broadcasts to our men in the armed forces wherever they may be. Tonight, for the Marines of Camp Pendleton at Oceanside, California, the Pepsodent Show, starring Bob Hope and his guest of honor, Ginger Rogers. Yes, uh, thank you, thank you. I wish I could follow that. Thank you very much. <laughs> this is Bob Camp Pendleton, Marine Base Hope. 
telling you to use Pepsodent whenever you get the chance, and your teeth will be as bright and as tight as the back of a sailor's pants. <laughs> Say, well, here I am at the Camp Pendleton Marine Training Base. That's a polite way of saying you may have been the apple of your mother's eye, but you're in the core now. <laughs> Camp Pendleton is about 100 miles from Hollywood as the crow marches. <laughs> he was drafted, too. This camp is situated on an old ranch, and it's really not much change from cowhounds to chowhounds. <laughs> and this is an awfully big camp, but the guys are only kidding when they say you have to fly an airplane nonstop to get from the barracks to the front gate. They know darn well you have to land twice to refuel. I, uh... And Camp Pendleton is so big, a Marine was AWL in San Francisco, and they couldn't say anything to him because he kept one foot inside the North Gate. <laughs> and this camp is divided into areas. Area number 24 is for women Marines exclusively, except for paratroopers who land there accidentally, no matter... <laughs> no matter how hard they pull their parachutes to make them drift the other way, they tell their officers. <laughs> and everything is really spread out here, but the Marines don't mind it. There's nothing like getting up in the morning and taking a nice five-mile walk to the place where you're going to start a 20-mile hike. <laughs> but these men are really rugged. They think nothing of 20-mile hikes. They can't. They're too busy thinking about the officers that order them. <laughs> these fellas... These, these fellas are really proud to be Marines. I won't say they get chesty about it. But I saw one guy standing on a street in Carlsbad, and every time he inhaled, his chest got a ticket for jaywalking. <laughs> I, uh... And these Marines are supposed to be tough, but I shook hands with one, and he couldn't have had a very strong grip because I still have my hand. He even gave me a sack to carry it home in. Yes, sir, these are the boys who are going to put the squeeze on the Japs. And every Saturday night, you can see them in town looking for something to practice on. <laughs> and due to the manpower shortage, they have girl barbers here. And some of these Marines go out with them nights. It's really wonderful to get a chance to trim you two ways. <laughs> These lady barbers are wonderful. This is the only place you can get a haircut and give a pint of blood to the Red Cross at the same time. Hope's top sidekick was Jerry Colonna, perhaps the wildest comic presence on 1940s radio. Colonna had once been a serious trombonist, playing with Goodman Shaw and the Dorseys. Now he infused Hope's program with verbal and vocal mayhem. He sported a four-inch walrus mustache and had a comedy style that blew away any attempt at logic. As soon as Colonna began to walk to the microphone, the studio audience warned listeners with laughter. Hope later wrote, there were two sides to Colonna's persona. One is the zany, silly moron, and the other is the deep-thinking, serious moron. His songstress was the immensely talented Francis Langford, 
equally adept at both comedy and drama. No wonder more people than ever before use Pepsi and toothpaste today. But Hope no was the star. As the late John Dunning once said, no one had ever told jokes quite like Bob Hope. His monologues were rapid-fire blasts of comedy, extremely topical, and wildly appreciated by his live audience. Radio Life wrote, Hope tells a gag in three lines. He'll work for an hour on a one-word change. By the time he goes on the air, he knows the gags by heart. He employed a team of 12 writers and two-man teams. Each were assigned to write the show's three sections. First came the monologue, then a mid-show routine with Kelowna or another member of the regular cast, and finally a sketch for the guest star. It was a true test of endurance. Hope demanded long rehearsals, including a 60-minute run-through with a live audience. He'd stand at the microphone, highlighting his script where the big laughs came. When you consider that Hope's weekly audience was more than each of the first two Super Bowls, it's easy to understand his point of view. The biggest problem with Hope, said producer Al Capstaff in 1945, was his inevitable tendency to pack the script. It was always 37 minutes long and had to be whittled down joke by joke until only the surefire material remained. The result on the air was a breathless gush with six laughs a minute guaranteed. But that was hope. Even in his 1972 Dick Cavett interview, which has been featured throughout this episode of Breaking Walls, an off-the-cuff hope can't help but pack one-liner after one-liner in the midst of a genuine serious conversation. The Pepsodent program was enhanced by Hope's film career. By February of 1944, Hope had starred in 17 films since the release of the big broadcast of 1938, including the first three Road to films with Bing Crosby. And here's Francis Langford. Thought I'd be holding you close to me, 
whispering it's you I adore, dearest one, if you should leave me, each little dream would take wing and my life would be. Singing Besame Mucho. Listen to those music lovers. Oh, boy. <laughs> we'll have some of the older types singing next week when Bing Crosby is guesting with us at Santa <laughs> Ana. <laughs> yeah, we'll have old Bing with us. Well, anyway, here we are at Camp Pendleton, Francis. You know, this whole place was once an old Spanish land grant. Yes, Bob, and just think, on this very spot years ago, the Spaniards used to click their castanets. Yeah, and these Marines have kept up to tradition, only they use square ones. <laughs> you know... You know, if a Spaniard walked in here now clicking a castanet, he'd be faded before he reached the front gate. <laughs> Only the winners applaud, you notice that? Say, did you notice the women Marines here, Bob? Yeah, these women Marines really went for me. When we arrived this morning, one woman Marine ran up, threw her arms around me, and gave me a great big kiss. Yes, Bob, and it, it puzzled me. It puzzled you? Yes, I thought your mother was stationed at San Diego. <laughs> Yeah, she was in the paratroops down there, but she got caught in a high wind. Say, where's Professor Colonna tonight? Oh, he's contributing his service to the fourth war loan drive. Oh, and it was getting along so nicely, too. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? 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 What do you know? Drugstore has an echo. <laughs> Tell me, Professor, how are you getting along in your war bond campaign? Great hope. Today I got rid of $60 million worth. Oh, that's unbelievable, Colonna. You sold $60 million worth of war bonds? Oh, you have to sell them? <laughs> well, where are you now, Colonna? Burlesque show. <laughs> Colonna, what's a burlesque show got to do with bonds? Do you think of anything that draws more interest? <laughs> I'm selling war bonds to some girls down here And this cop is interfering I never heard of such a thing, Colonna You're selling war bonds to the girls And the cop is interfering What does he say? Watch me to get down off the runway <laughs> Colonna, you're not fit to talk to an idiot Well, maybe we can write notes <laughs> Well, Miss Vera Vague. Yes, yes, Miss Vague, this is where the Marines are turned out Oh, goodness, and they're probably nice and fresh I'll take a dozen <laughs> oh, I, I feel as frisky as a young colt tonight <laughs> A young colt? You look more like an old 45 
<laughs> I'd brain you if I had a pair of nylons to wear to the trial. Well, how do you like Camp Pendleton, Miss Vane? Oh, I think it's just lovely, but I'm mad at the officers and men here, Mr. Hope. I find them very hard to take. You find the officers and men hard to take, Miss Vague? Why? Well, they've got guards here that search at the gate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have enjoyed that. a good idea at the time. <laughs> I suppose at one time you did, too. Uh, <laughs> you're hot tonight, aren't you? <laughs> you know, don't you, there's a time and place for everything. There is? Yes, and if you were in yours, you'd be still hotter. <laughs> That would be funny because I tried it on the MP who stopped me at the gate. Oh. <laughs> oh, so the MP didn't want to let you in the camp? No, he didn't. He just kept saying, over my dead body, over my dead body. Well, that's too bad. Oh, I don't know. After all, out of a great big camp like this, who's going to miss one little old MP? <laughs> I'll get a pardon me, Miss Vague. Hello. Hello. Oh, trouble. You know that $8,000 I took in selling war bonds? Three men just took it away from me in an alley. Oh, Colonna, that's terrible. Did you tell the nearest policeman? Yes, but it's no use, Hope. He's losing, too. <laughs> Colonna, there's someone in this program who would like to buy a bond from you. Come here at once. Okay. Colonna, how'd you get here so quick? Drank a highball at Garrigan's Cafe. Professor, why don't you sell Miss Vague here a $25 war bond? It's only $18.75. She must have $18.75 on her. I'll find out. Hope say, Miss Vague. Oh, yes, Professor. Think of the year you were born. Got it? Yes, I've got it. Got it in cash? <laughs> oh, bless you, fungus face. <laughs> I used to think man was descended from apes, but after looking at you, I can see man hasn't quite made it yet. <laughs> oh, well, I can't get mad at you, Professor. You're so cute. Do you mind if I run my fingers through your mustache? Okay, but don't disturb the rabbits. <laughs> Colonna, why did you put rabbits in your mustache? Gophers got lonesome. <laughs> I get married. Just picture it, the two of us living happily in a vine-covered cottage. You hurry home from work. You're coming up the walk. You see me standing in the doorway. And tenderly, you say... Close the door. You're letting the flies. <laughs> ah, but, Miss Vague, I, I'll kiss you, if it'll sell a bond. Oh. But uh, I warn you, my kisses are electric... Well, my kisses are electric, too, Professor. Excuse me. All right. Colonna, what happened? She was AC. I was DC. (laughs) 
Pepsodent and only Pepsodent contains irium. And Pepsodent toothpaste with irium removes film that makes teeth look dull. It loosens film and floats it away quickly, easily, safely. And when film is gone, Pepsodent toothpaste with irium brings new brilliance to your teeth, uncovers the natural brightness of your smile. So get a tube of Pepsodent toothpaste with irium. And remember, Pepsodent toothpaste, because only Pepsodent contains irium. Ladies and gentlemen, on March 1st, you'll no longer need to bring in an empty tin tube when you buy a new tube of Pepsodent. That's in effect after March 1st. But before March 1st, your government wants all the empty tubes you've been saving. So look through your medicine chest now. Bring all the empty tubes to your drugstore. Those tubes contain precious tin that may save lives. And you won't need them after March 1st. The Marines are always assigned the toughest, toughest things to take. But tonight we've got something for you that's very easy to take, and here she is. One of Hollywood's top flight stars, currently starring in the Paramount picture Lady in the Dark, Miss Ginger Rogers. Thank you, Bob, and thank you, boys. Well, welcome to the Pepsodent Show, Ginger. It's really a treat to meet the girl who was the Lady in the Dark. <laughs> Thanks, Bob, but you can unpucker. I'm not turning off any lights while you're around. Well, I wasn't puckering. I just used starch in my irium. Say, it was nice. <laughs> it was nice of you to come down here tonight, Ginger. Did you have any trouble getting away? Oh, I would have come anyhow, Bob. You know, I'm uh, married to a Marine. These are my boys. <laughs> These are your boys. That's well, you're right. doing better than Crosby. Say, uh... <laughs> So you're married to a Marine, huh? Mm-hmm. How do you like that those guys take all the best objectives? Say, <laughs> is your husband here in the country, Ginger? Uh, no, Bob. Right now, my husband's somewhere in the South Pacific. Oh, well, tell me more about him. Was he a Marine when you married him? Oh, yes. We got married on one of his leaves. You mean he lost his liberty while he was on it, huh? <laughs> Tell you, you couldn't pick anybody better than a Marine to marry, Ginger. Couldn't I? No, they're honest and loyal and brave and... Boy, Boy I sound like I'm getting the allotment. <laughs> Say, you come from Texas, don't you, Ginger? Yes, I come from Texas, where men are men and women are women. Yeah, nice arrangement, isn't it? <laughs> you know... There were a couple of parts for handsome men and Lady in the Dark. I wonder why I wasn't in it. It wasn't that dark. <laughs> did you see the picture, Bob? I certainly did. What love scenes? They were the most exciting I ever took part in. The love scenes were the most exciting you ever took part in? Why, Bob, you weren't even in the picture. I know. That's what the usher said when he threw me out. <laughs> But you have three leading men in Lady in the Dark, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Ray Milan, Warner Baxter, and John Hall. Well, why don't you ever ask for me? Bob, when you can have caviar, who wants to bother with K-Ration? <laughs> well, I had some for lunch, and it didn't bother me at all. Ho, ho, ho! But tell me, what's Lady in the Dark all about, Ginger? Well, it's a story with a dream in it. <laughs> 
Yes, you certainly are. Yeah. <laughs> no, Bob, I, I mean it's got lots of dreams in it. Long, beautiful, pleasant dreams. Long, beautiful, pleasant dreams. Who directed it, Ovaltine? <laughs> Uh, I'm a girl who has a mental complex, and I go to a psychiatrist. A whatatrist? A psychiatrist. Oh, a psychiatrist. A psychiatrist is a student of human behavior. Well, that's my hobby. I'm a student of human behavior. Yes, but they look at men, too. <laughs> Psychiatrists can, uh, can even explain your dreams, Bob. You know, there's a reason for every dream. Yeah, I know that. One of the Marines here kept dreaming all night that he was in Bermuda. And what was it? The guy in the bunk under him had onions for supper. <laughs> but let's... Let's delve in psychiatry, Ginger. You be the lady psychiatrist, and I'll be the Marine in the quandary. Okay, Stan, quandary music. Is that all right, okay, Ginger? Okay, Well, here's the office, psychiatrist. <laughs> I like to get examined at Tickles. Well, young man. Are you the psychiatrist? Yes. I'm Dr. Rogers, M.D. M.D.? <laughs> My dish. <laughs> well, I, I kind of like you. Well, I don't affect you that much, do I? No, I always wear my Adam's apple on the outside. <laughs> well, I'm here. I'm ready to have my head examined. Okay, you want to wait, or will you call back for it? Uh, <laughs> here, Ruff, let me, let me look at your head. Mmm, my, my. My, but it has a peculiar shape. And it's so flat. Yeah, my head's the one in front. You're looking at my mess kit. <laughs> well, come on now. Let's, let's get on with your case. Do you sleep night? Nope, can't sleep. Long dreams? Nope, short bunks. <laughs> You really need psychoanalyzing, young man. Tell me, do you have a girlfriend? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> but you uh, like girls, don't you? <laughs> well, let me see now. <laughs> you like them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they don't like me. Well, perhaps you're not romantic enough with a girl. Tell me, when the lights are low and there's soft music playing and you two are all alone in the room and all is still... What do you do? Crack my knuckles. But why? why? Nobody will crack them for me. Well, we'd better get on with the examination. Now, um, now I'll test your reflexes. I'll uh, tap your knee with this hammer. I think you've got too much iron in your system. Well, say, do you really think I'm a mental case? Yes, and I think I know what caused it. You've been training too hard. Training too hard? Yes, now you just go to your commanding officer, and I'm sure he'll give you a 30-day leave. Yeah. <laughs> now who's nuts? <laughs> and Ginger Rogers now does a request number for the boys, Shoo Shoo Baby. Take it, Stan Kent. Up and down the avenue And 
now he's wearing the navy blue She had a tear in the corner of her eye As he said his last goodbye Shoo, 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 baby Shoo, 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 baby Bye, bye, bye I just want to say thanks to Major General Joseph Fegan, Captain McCallan, Captain Ford, and Sergeant Moore. All these folks here at Camp Pendleton. And before brushing our teeth for the night, here's Ginger Rogers again. Say, Ginger, mm-hmm. how about a hamburger and a Coke after the show? <laughs> no, Bob, thanks. I've, I've got a date with a fountain pen. I'm writing my husband in the South Pacific. Yeah, well, how about tomorrow night? No, thanks. I'll be writing to my husband. What are you doing after the war? <laughs> Ginger? It's important to write to a man overseas, but you know, overseas, there's something a lot more important than writing letters. What's that? Reading letters. Bob, you're on the beam there. And all of us who can't get behind a grand rifle should get behind a lead pencil and keep in constant touch with those APO and FPO numbers. You know, those Pacific jungles are a long way from Main Street, and the icy Aleutians a long way from the local skating rink. Daydreaming of home so far away from home makes it seem even farther away, but a letter from home, well, brother, when you're overseas and you open that letter, you've got yourself a little chunk of home right there in your hand. You're right, Ginger. And our best to the Marine Women's Reserve on their first anniversary, and Uncle Sam's fighting leathernecks, the best of the best to the best. Good night. Good night. another broadcast from the men in the armed forces wherever they may be. Next week, Testament will present Bob Hope with his special guest, Bing Crosby, playing for the Army Air Force at Santa Ana, California. This is Wendell Niles speaking.
Thank you. Didn't it stink, huh? This is the National Broadcasting Company. saw you and brought you to Hollywood? Who saw me and brought me to Hollywood? Were you on Broadway at that time? Yeah, I had already played Low State, and I was at the Capitol Theater in uh, Washington, D.C. I was the official master of ceremonies at the White House for six and a half years under the Roosevelt administration. Were you really? Yes. Uh-huh. As for the gridiron luncheon for Eddie Cantor introduced me the first time for the... Um, March of Dimes. March of Dimes. Sure. Now, the scene changes. I had made a screen test in 1932 and nothing happened you know <laughs> I said well what happened they said they didn't like the hat hmm. I said the hat I'll buy, I'll buy a new hat you know they didn't want to hurt my feelings so I'm at the White House and Mickey Rooney came back and little Mickey says what am I going to do out on stage you know he says, this is all kind of new to me and stuff. so I wrote a, a routine for he and I to do you know on the stage so he came out, and afterwards, he went back, and he says to Mr. Mary, he says, I saw the funniest guy I ever saw in my life. He says, you got to go see him, or get him out here or something. Frank Brzezegi overheard this, and then I was working with Lupe Velez. Oh, boy. Okay? I'm talking now about Metro. This is after I made the first picture, uh, having a, a wonderful time. I was at Low State, New York at that time. Yeah. This uh-huh. is the first picture. Yes. That's about 1937. And that's Ginger Rogers. Yes. In the green. Ginger Rogers. And you know who was in that? Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. And you know who else? Lucille Ball was one of the more or less like an extra in the picture. And we sat in the dressing room and talked. What year would this have been about? About 1938, 37. 37, because in 38 I was on radio then. After Bob Hope's program signed off at 1030, the Red Skelton Show signed on. It debuted on Tuesday, October 7, 1941. By February of 1944, it was pulling a rating of 29.9. Ozzie and Harriet Nelson were heavily featured. And then after that, we went into Radio Red Skelton. Mm-hmm. with Robbie Figure. Mm-hmm. And you played Junior's mother. Huh? I did a mother <laughs> a mean little kid. <laughs> and then I did Daisy June mm-hmm. from Canigo Hopper. I did Baby Dead Eye. Yeah. yeah. And I did mm-hmm. Calamity June. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did you have fun working with Red? Uh, oh, yeah, he's such a brilliant mm-hmm. I've often said, when he was right, when his timing was so right, I used to get chills down my back. <laughs> it was like listening to a great symphony, you uh, know? He's such a talent. Skelton was so supercharged that he couldn't do a pre-show warm-up. He left the audience exhausted and practically catatonic during the main show. So Skelton reversed the formula and gave his fans an after-show. Among his peers, it was considered the hottest comedy act in town. Lorraine Tuttle, who later appeared with Ozzie and Harriet on their own show, also starred on the Red Skelton show. I understand that he put on a after show for the studio audience when the regular radio broadcast. Yes, he broadcast did. At least done. an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. He got steamed up, you know, and the half-hour show didn't really satisfy him, so he kept the audience there afterwards. When we when we were on Fridays, we would have a preview on Thursday night, and he would go on and on and on and on. We'd have to stay there, because we'd have to wait till this after show was over before we could listen to the record. And oh, we would uh-huh. listen to the record to see how things went. And then we came back the next day and did the live show. Always live. 
I don't think I ever went on that we weren't live. Yeah. Did you have to do two shows then, didn't you, for the West Coast and the East Coast? No. In that case, no, because it was taken off on transcription and replayed. Many times we would do a 5 o'clock show, mm -hmm. and that would be taken off on transcription and played later. But in the old days, we did do two shows. Mm -hmm. We would have an afternoon show, a 5 o'clock show, or a 5.30 show, and then come back and do it again at 8.30. Mm -hmm. But those were a lot of audience shows, too. We would wear street clothes in the afternoon and come back and wear evening clothes. Oh, you're really oh with yes, it was a very glamorous two business. Two uh -huh. different audiences. Mm -hmm. then. Over at the Huntington Hartford, when I go backstage there, I think of the many radio shows we used to do there. The Lux radio sh show went mm -hmm. on there. And lots of radio shows went on because they were audience shows. That's why I felt that radio was not just a microphone-working kind mm -hmm. of show. It was audience participation. And the American Armed Forces and their allies, a rebroadcast of the Red Skelton Show, with Shirley Mitchell, Ozzie Nelson, Harriet Hilliard, and starring Red Skelton. Thank you. Thank you very much. Those sea bees, they speak right up, don't they? Thank you very much and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How are you, Fat? I'm oh, just fine, Ed. Say, how'd you enjoy your visit to Washington, D.C.? Oh, I had a fine trip. Uh, when I got to Washington, the officials told me I could have anything I wanted, and then they backed out. Well, did you ask for something hard to get? Yeah, a hotel room. <laughs> I hear you had lunch at the White House. Yeah, the only thing I didn't like, I didn't get any butter. You know, the chain on my knife was so short, I couldn't reach it. <laughs> about us, though. Do we have anyone with us tonight who plays an important part in our American way of living? Yes, Red, and I'd like you to meet Tippy O'Connor, a bellboy from one of the finest hotels in Los Angeles. Well, how are you tonight, O'Connor? Uh, I'm fine, Red. Say, Tippy, with all the hotels so full these days, I guess they keep you kind of busy, don't they? <laughs> yes, Red, the guests expect us to be everywhere at once. Really? Yeah, each one believes that he's the most important one in the hotel, and that we bellboys should be ready to wait on him to drop the hat. Yeah, well, it takes more than a drop of hat to get a bellboy. <laughs> <laughs> Something with a little more jingle to it. <laughs> what hotel do you hop at, Tippy? Well, I'm the chief bellhop at the No Vacancy Hotel. No... <laughs> oh, you're kidding. What's the real name of that? <laughs> no. Huh? no, that's right. It is? Yeah. <laughs> Either he's lost his place or he's dead. I don't know. <laughs> is that the name of the place, really? Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, you're supposed to say, no, we haven't got any room, so it don't make any difference anyhow. <laughs> say, do the, do the guests ever try to sneak out without paying their bill? Yeah. I remember one time we caught a man trying to disguise himself as a woman. Yeah, I know a fellow who did that once. He tried to run away, see? But the skirt was so tight, I tripped and almost broke my neck. <laughs> I love hotels, though. <laughs> well, most show folks consider a hotel their home. Yeah, I used to have fun. One time I saw a fellow sitting on a stepladder looking over a transom, and I pushed him off. A gentleman gesture. No, it was a little crowded for both of us. <laughs> I used to be a lifesaver in the hotel. I used to look over the uh, over the transom, you know. <laughs> I used to look over the transom, and then when the woman yelled for help, I'd run in and save her. <laughs> hey, tell me, have you ever had any strange experiences in the hotel? Oh, yes. Read what's here, of course. <laughs> 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 One time, a man called up 
And he said he had a feeling he was going to die. Yeah, why? It seems his wife was standing in front of him with a gun. <laughs> Did she shoot him? I don't know. I don't know, but when they carried him out, he had an extra button on his shirt. <laughs> well, before I forget it, why do they call you Tippy? Huh? Well, that's the nickname my friends hung on me because I always do extra things for the hotel guests so that I'll get a bigger tip. Yeah? But people seem to think we bellboys like dimes best. <laughs> well, maybe those tight pants you fellows wear, I guess they figure a dime is the only coin will fit in them. <laughs> well, oh, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for dropping around, Tippy. I promise you, though, if I ever stop at your hotel, I'll give you something bigger than a dime. You will? Yeah, a nickel. <laughs> When we were little tiny boys, my mother took us to the B.F. Keys Theater in Indianapolis, where she worked. She ran the elevator, and then after the theater closed at night, she worked as a charwoman, and she gave us tickets to go to the theater. And I sat there, and I watched the first time I'd ever seen a, a stage show. I sat there, and I watched all the actors and stuff. Not until the comedian came on. He fell in the piano, and he'd shoot, look down at a gun, and it would go off, and all these stuff. And I turned, and I watched the audience. And I saw all these people who had great tragedy on their faces. It disappeared. And they started laughing and stuff. And I said, boy, that's what I want to do. I'm going to try to make people laugh. So I was sitting on the elevator stool. My mother was running the elevator up and down. And I said, you know, Mur, I said, I'm, I call her Mur. I said, I never say mother, mm. you know. I said, Mur, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm to be in show business. I want to be... And she looked at me and she said, well, I knew that it would come out in one of you boys. I didn't know which one. And then she told me that my father had been a clown at one time with Hagenback and Wallace Circus. Later, I joined the circus. But I went home that night. And the next day, I stopped by the grocery store and I got a little box, a little wooden box that like oranges and stuff used to come in, you know. And I cut it down. And I made a proscenium arch across the front. And I cut little clothespins cut faces on them and, and draw them and paint the little faces in as my actors. And I would write these plots and things. About I was about seven, eight years old then. I would write these little short stories and let them act them out. And I had my own little theater, the curtains and everything. For three seasons, Skelton's popularity soared. But then he got divorced and lost his marriage to Ferment. The Army drafted Skelton in 1944. MGM and radio sponsor Raleigh Cigarettes tried to help with no avail. The draft board also turned down his request to join the special services branch for entertainers. Skelton's last radio program was on D-Day, June 6, 1944. The next day, he was formally inducted as a private. Without its star, the program was discontinued until he could come back from the war. Bye-bye. Now we come to our satire on our American way of living. And our subject is hotels. One of the most uh, romantic hotels in the United States are at Niagara Falls. Let's look in on Bolivar Shagnassy, who's just been married. <laughs> Well, here we are on our honeymooning. Uh, kind of exciting, ain't it? 
Say, who's that character hanging on the side of the car wiping our windshield? He's been there all day. That's the guy from the filming station. He won't take no for an answer. <laughs> hey, are you hungry? Let's stop your hamburger, huh? I'd rather have a kiss. Okay. Let's stop and get a hamburger. <laughs> now, we'll soon be in Niagara, you know. Well, how's about another kiss? Okay. <laughs> Say, I think we got a slow leak in our back tire. Right? My love. Are you listening, President Lincoln? That's your theme song, sir. And you'll be hearing it plenty during these next few days. Because you see, sir, we still celebrate your birthday here in America. And that's why tonight a small group of us have gotten together to bring you a birthday present. The kind of present we know you'll like. It's a story, Mr. Lincoln. A story that's worth telling on this particular anniversary of your birth. Why, you ask? Well, you see, Mr. President, we're at war again. A group of men rose up in Europe to proclaim that they were going to enslave the world. They've said, in effect, that you were a liar, sir. They've said that all men are not created equal. That what they call the inferior and minority races can never amount to anything. And so we went to war with them. And we're beating them. And we're resolved that never again will their philosophy creep into the minds of men. For we know that it's not the color of a man's skin or the tenets of his creed that determine whether or not he can be great. And this story, one of hundreds we could tell you, proves that. It's the story of a man you freed from slavery, Mr. Lincoln, the simple story of a great American... The story of a man whose work in years gone by is now helping us to win this greatest of all wars. We hope you will like it, sir. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the Council on Books in Wartime, presents the 35th in this Words at War series. Words at War was an anthology of war stories told by the men and women who have seen them happen. It was produced in cooperation with the Council of Books in wartime, promising stories of the battlefronts, of behind-the-scenes diplomacy, of underground warfare, of the home front, of action on the high seas. Each show was to be a living record of this war and the things for which we fight. First taken to the air on June 24, 1943 from New York, it was praised by Variety as one of the most outstanding programs in radio, by the New York Times as the boldest hard-hitting program of 1944, and by Newsweek as one of the best contributions to serious commercial radio in many a year. Despite airing at 11.30 p.m. on Tuesdays, Words of War stimulated conversation and controversy throughout its two-year run. On Tuesday, February 8, 1944, a story on George Washington Carver was broadcast. Tonight we offer a character study of a great American, based in large part upon Rackham Holt's best-selling biography, George Washington Carver. Our story, told as it might be to Abraham Lincoln, 
will be presented by Frederick March, while Canada Lee will be heard as Dr. Carver. It happened just about 60 days before you entered the White House, and about five years before you made that last visit to Ford's Theater. You remember? But it happened far away from Washington, sir. It was down in Missouri, in Diamond Grove, Missouri. There stood the Carver Plantation. It was rather a fancy name for the poor acres of Farmer Moses Carver, and life upon them was made no easier by the jungle law which then prevailed in Missouri. You remember that year of 61, Mr. President? The uh, Missouri Compromise was a failure, and pro-slavery adherents in Missouri continued their bitter struggle with the Kansas Free Staters. Hatred was abroad, and bands of bushwhackers and guerrillas riding under the black banner were a scourge on the land, plundering, pillaging, burning, and murdering. These were the order of the day. Well, there in a cabin of the Carver Farm one evening sat a Negro slave woman, cradling her baby in her arms and gently swaying back and forth as she sang the infant to sleep. The raiders came, laying the lash of their cruelty upon God's creatures. They came to the Carver farm and carried off the slave woman and her infant son, George. Farmer Carver gathered a rescue party and went off in hot pursuit. The trail led due south into Arkansas. And there, Farmer Carver caught up with the kidnappers and for the ransom of a fine racehorse, recovered the child. But the mother, she was gone. And she was never heard of again. Cost kind-hearted Moses Carver a racehorse valued at 300 silver dollars to get that little black baby back, Mr. President. And I know that never in American history has $300 brought bigger returns to the nation. If you don't believe me, sir, wait and see. That wild ride into Arkansas gave the baby a desperate case of whooping cough. He recovered, but all through his childhood, he remained a delicate little boy. So instead of putting him into the fields, the carvers, his white foster parents, let him busy himself around the house and in the garden. And that's how he began a lifelong practice of talking to the flowers. <laughs> Some people might call that just plain silly, Mr. President, talking to the flowers. But when that little boy had grown into a man, he explained it to himself this way. In the beauty and aroma and variety of the flowers, I saw my first realization of the Creator's great truth. The truth that there's room on this earth for all, and that it's every creature's duty in life to serve the world and his fellow creatures to the best of his ability, to be as useful, to lend as much beauty to life as is possible. That's why I've always talked to the flowers. They are the little, little windows through which man can see the face of God. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Lincoln, sir. Don't go getting the idea that because this little fellow spent his spare time talking to the Creator through the flowers, don't get to thinking he was one of those prissy little children. No, sir. At times, he was a little hellion on wheels. 
When Words of War signed off at midnight, NBC broadcast a 90-minute program for the fourth war bond drive. It was part of an extended effort to raise funds. The night prior at midnight, Ben Grauer hosted this show over NBC. Fall in line, America. All out for the NBC war bond parade. Yes, forward march to victory, listeners, with more NBC stars in this seventh consecutive war bond parade. Yes, more stars. For look, you can see them coming from here. There's Raymond Massey, Nora Sterling, W.W. Chaplin, Dwight Kramer from The Right to Happiness, David Helm, and The Woman of America. That's the New York division. From Washington, Dr. I.Q. And from Chicago, Josephine Antoine and Reinhold Schmidt. Wait a minute. Who's that? Why, sure, from Hollywood, it's Kay Kaiser, Red Skelton, and Ronald Coleman. And the Grand Marshal of all, the man who gives the commands to start our marching, John W. Van Der Kook. Good morning and good evening. This is John W. Vandercook, your parade starter, giving the command to Henri Nosco, our orchestra leader, to strike up the band. I was 13. I herded lambs beyond the village on the lee. The magic of the sun, perhaps, or what was it, affected me. I felt with joy all overcome, as though with God. Rover operator Ilya Zakharov, authorization number 00461 of the Lunar Agricultural Expedition Program. The time for lunch had long passed by. And still among the weeds I lay, and prayed to God, I know not why. It was so pleasant then to pray. Phantom Nine, initialize. But not for long the sun stayed kind. Not long in bliss I prayed. Phantom Nine, initialized. It turned into a ball of fire and set the world ablaze. As though just wakened up, I gaze the hamlet's drab and poor, and God's blue heavens, even they, are glorious no more. Ilya! Don't let it see you! From Denouncer Media comes a brand new experience in audio horror, Red Odyssey, starring Alison Cossett, Peter Wicks, Sarah Golding, Erica Sanderson, James Scully, Peter Wyshynski, and Brandon Levine. Red Odyssey, a Lovecraftian horror story you will never forget. Coming September 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. How many close shaves have you had in all that traveling? Well, we had a couple, and our first trip offshore was in 1942 to Alaska. Yeah. And we left a place called Cordova in a Lockheed Lodestar, small plane, 
And we said we never were going to fly at night, up there especially, you know. But there was a gentleman called Simon Bolivar Buckner, who was having a big street party for us, and we had to get back. So we got up into this storm. We didn't know there was a storm. We got up into it. They lost the radio, and they put the parachutes and the Mae Wests on us. We're 13,000 feet over Anchorage, and the guy said, when you jump, pull these things, you know. And I looked over at Tony Romano, and he turned green, so we gave him a little shot of booze, and we're all sitting there. And I always loved Jerry Colonna for one thing, because he was sitting there with a trench coat and a Phelps Turkel pot hat on, way down, because it was cold by that time in the plane. And I looked over, and I went, and he went. <laughs> What's going to be is going to be, you know? Yeah. And it broke me up, even at the fact. We got into the backwash of United Airlines, or felt our backwash, because we, we had no radio. We were just flipping around 13,000 feet. Yeah. He went down and reported we were there. The general put up the anti-aircraft lights, and one pierced through the clouds, and this pilot followed them down to the field, you know. Wow. And we got out, and I want to tell you, boy, I turned into a little girl. They had to carry me away and everything. <laughs> Is that, oh. that one came to your mind first. Is, yeah, that, is that the most scared you've been? Yeah, that's the one that scared me. And I had, yeah. We had another one down in the South Pacific where we made a forced landing, and I was flying the plane. I probably shouldn't tell this on the air, but I was flying this Navy Catalina from Brisbane to... Uh, I wasn't flying. I was just up there, you know, holding the thing, because yeah. it's just like a bus after it gets in the air. And the pilot was back there, and I was holding the thing like this, you know probably be a congressional investigation about this. <laughs> but uh, this motor started to go out, two-motor plane, and the pilot came up to him, get out of there. And he feathered this prop, and he called the sergeant, and he said, jettison everything on this plane. It was a Navy Catalina with a blister in the back. You know that thing that's jumping up? Big the plastic bubble yeah. in the back? Started throwing all the suitcases out. We had a big case of cigarettes out, two or three cases of liquor out, you know. Landed in a little place called Laurieton, Australia where he hit, we jumped about 100 feet, hit again, and hit a sandbar, see, stopped. Little town called Lloyd, peaceful little summer resort town, you know. Mm -hmm. Guy came rowing out from the shore in a, in a rowboat. We're all standing on the wing by now. He looked up, he said, I say there, do you have any American cigarettes there? <laughs> and it was, you know, and here we are, we're all happy that we're alive, and this cat thinks it's a Pan-American stop, you know? <laughs> plane never landed there in this little lake before. But That's we were very happy to be down. On Saturday, February 12, 1944, Ken Carpenter was announcer for a command performance guest starring Bob Hope, Frank Sinatra, and Judy Garland. Hope had just co-hosted with Bing Crosby, a pro-amateur golf charity event. USA, the greatest entertainers in America, as requested by you, the servicemen of the United States Armed Forces throughout the world. Command performance presented this week and every week till it's over, over there. Well, gang, it's another week and another command performance, the personal property of all you guys and gals who write to this old bake, care of Armed Forces Radio, Los Angeles, USA. And because of those letters, tonight we're hitting into a triple play. 
From Judy Garland to Frank Sinatra to your master of ceremonies, Bob Hope. Thank you, thank you very much. This is Bob Command Performance Hope. Telling you guys that though Hitler says he's getting out of the Russian winter trap, he's still running in his long woolen underwear with a Russian bear yapping at his flap. <laughs> yes, sir, I just got back from seeing my doctor. I'm getting in shape for a trip overseas this spring. I'm in good condition now, but was I nervous before I started? For six months, I couldn't touch tea, coffee, or Esquire. Boy, was I run down Whenever I passed one of those recruiting posters Uncle Sam would drop his eyes <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> to show you how weak I was Every time I let my yo-yo down I'd go down with it <laughs> But I'm glad I'm in great shape now Because with that new draft regulation You've got to be fit You've got to get inducted now 60 days after your physical Physical, that's army for how do you do, take off your clothes, stick out your tongue, you're in. <laughs> but this 60-day delay is a good thing. Those draft boards have really been working fast. The guy that lives next to me is a baseball player. Last year, he hit a triple. As he rounded first, he was classified 1A. As he rounded second, he was inducted, and his wife slid into third base. <laughs> Baseball, it's a great game, isn't it? I used to follow baseball very closely And then someone invented slacks But the past <laughs> But the past few years Women have really been taking over baseball In fact, last week I had a date with a girl baseball player She was an infielder, I know Because I couldn't get the first base and... In fact, I remember I struck out But she asked me to uh... She asked me to work out with the team the next day And I did And do those girls play rough I slid into second base, and the second baseman stepped right on my neck with her spikes. I'm the only guy in North Hollywood who could drink a glass of water and sprinkle the lawn at the same time. <laughs> I think they're better back here. <laughs> but boy, those girls can play ball. I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, I'm here somewhere. <laughs> Finally, I got the bat. I hit the ball for three bags, but only one of them caught it. And, <laughs> and a call to Major George G4 Graf at APO 37. Mage, every minute of the command performance is in memory of guys like Jimmy and George. Down in Bray Springs, Australia, Pat and Marge Vincent say Sunday is the only night we get through milking the cows early because command performance makes Sunday our big night. Thanks, girls. Say, did you hear the one about the Australian traveling salesman? But on to 980, and hello to the... <laughs> Remember, I'm just reading from letters. <laughs> but, but on to 980, and hello to the aviation engineers and Nickel Bear Jim Keyes, to LAC Brightwall and the Cheerful Aid in Plymouth, to Sergeant L.M. McCarroll in the South Pacific with regards from Crosby. Why do I have to answer Crosby's mail? <laughs> He's got an airmail contract with a stork. I can't understand that. <laughs> but man, here's a mighty swell guy that Bing and I really think a lot of, the swoon crooner himself, Crosby without hips, Frank Sinatra. Thanks, Bob. Hiya, fellas. 
Frankie, it's great being here with you in this command performance. Thank you. Yes, sir. I've watched you work, Frank, and believe me, you make a very lovely couple. Couple? Who? You and the microphone. <laughs> me and the microphone? Are you kidding, Hope? We're not even the same size. You will be as soon as you put on a little weight. <laughs> But seriously, Frankie, we've got a great show here tonight. Just think, Judy Garland's here. That's an eyeful. You're going to sing a song. That's an earful. And I'll tell a few more jokes. That's a noseful. <laughs> Look, Frank, isn't it silly our belting each other around like this when we could be taking it out on that rotund lad I carry along in our road pictures? You mean uh, Happy Tonsils? Yeah, that's him. <laughs> Scuttlebutt, I mean, that's it. <laughs> that punchy Pagliacci, that rhapsody in flab. Let's talk about old hydrant head, shall we? No, now look, uh, 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 Bob, instead of picking on Bing, why don't you pick on somebody your own age? <laughs> I think it's silly for you and I to argue. But look, son, Bing isn't that old. He's only 34. How do you know he I is? I was at his last birthday party. I saw the cake. You mean there were 34 candles on it? There were on the piece I had. <laughs> Just imagine the laugh I'd have gotten if I'd have read it right, huh? You shouldn't say things like that, Bob. After all, Bing's a grand guy and the greatest singer in America. You said what? I said... <laughs> I said he's a grand guy and the greatest singer in America. You feel all right, kid? <laughs> hmm? Yes, of course. Uh... All this comparison between Bing's voice and mine is ridiculous. The whole thing is that Bing has a... He has a much larger vibrato than... Much larger than mine. I know, but only the band can see it. <laughs> now, with you, Cracker, it's a little different. I mean... <laughs> now, look, uh, Bob, uh, you suppose if Cross ever gets tired of the magic lanterns, how's about my getting a shot at the road picture deal? You in a road picture, Frankie? Well, why not? Well, we're not working on the detours yet, but I'll tell you. <laughs> but that's not a bad idea. We'd make a great picture starring the five of us. The five of us? Yeah, you, me, Dorothy Lamour, and the two guys who hold you up. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Don't you think I could take Bing's place? I don't know. After all, the groaner's a manly lad. I've seen that boy. He's got hair on his chest. Well, he's got to have hair someplace. How <laughs> <laughs> uh... But now that we've settled that, Frank, let's discuss music. What are you going to sing? Well, Bob, I'd like to pay off those command performance letters asking for that Jerome Kern number for Music in the Air. The song is you. That will buy. Take it, Frankie. Bob Hope did his first remote broadcast from March Field on May 6, 1941. Initially reluctant to leave the studio... The roar of laughter and applause from that first crowd was so loud, he would recall that he got goose pimples during the broadcast. He was hooked. He spent most of the next seven years on the road, broadcasting from bases, camps, and hospitals. The cast was put on alert, ready to go at the drop of a hat. Francis Langford was given a 24-hour notice to hop a bomber for Alaska in 1943. They hit 100 camps that year, in addition to their weekly radio show. They also went to Europe, doing a show at Messina just after the enemy had fled the town and was still bombarding the area with artillery. 
They did that to me one time. The 82nd Airborne Troopers put a bomb under the stage in 1943 in Africa. Well, that's funny. Just to see what I... That's right. Yeah. That's funny. That's what they thought. Yeah. Just to see my reaction, I jumped four feet right into a colonel's arms. We're married now. Been <laughs> writing ever since, eh? No, it's true. They did the 82nd Airborne in some place in Khartoum in Africa, some town. This year, 1944, on a trip to the South Pacific, Hope's plane had to make a crash landing in Australia. John Steinbeck wrote of Hope, It is impossible to see how he can do so much, can cover so much ground, can work so hard, and can still be so effective. Newsweek called it the biggest entertainment giveaway in history. Many times Hope appeared on command performance, broadcast over the armed forces radio service. Ken Carpenter recalled those shows. Give out tickets at the uh, USO and various uh -huh. places, you see. And, of course, tickets were in great demand because they're all the big stars. We did, I recall, one show was Bing and Frank Sinatra and Bob Hope, all three of them, you see. You get shows like that with all kinds of stars, and of course, they're all glad to do them. And there were some great shows, of course, that were never heard in this country. That's right, yeah. There were tremendous shows that were just overseas. The song my heart would sing That beautiful rhapsody Of love and youth and spring The music is sweet The words are true The song is Fellas, some gals in this country are just lucky. Take Judy Garland. Everybody loves Judy. Iceland, Greenland, Persia, India, China, the European Theater, the Pacific Theater. We even get mail address, command performance, care of Judy Garland. So, fellas, here's your girl, Judy Garland. Thank you, Robert, and hi, fellas. When you guys holler command performance, I come a-running. Love to Mike and the Signal Service at 604, to Company C at 713, to Joan L. James in Shepherd's Bush at London West 12. Regards, Joe Rady and the ship workers of 948. Howdy to Stardust Jasper at 729, and my very good friends Al, Jim, and Herb at 525. Hello to 980 and the Section 8 mob, including Boss Man... <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Boss Man Kern, Carmichael the Walsing Bear... Buck Rogers and Eshman the Wolf. Up north, the four working jerks in Hut 2 send us regards and say we've got a laundry now and we could do Bob Hope's ears for him. <laughs> but fellas, the orchestra's getting impatient, so for all of you everywhere, and with all my love, here's a little tune that they had me record for the jukeboxes the other day. Until 
baby comes home No, sir, no, nothing As long as baby must roam I promise him I'd wait for him Till even Hades froze I'm lonesome But what I said still goes No love, no nothing And that's a promise I'll keep No fun with no one I'm getting plenty of sleep My heart's on strike and An empty honeycomb No love, no sir No nothing till my baby comes Fellas, we're going to do a musical melodrama. Our stagehand, Ken Carpenter, will set the scene. Oh, oh. oh, oh. Well, pick it up, Dad. This ain't the Crosby show, you know. Please. <laughs> All right, relax, Hope. I've handled these amateur nights before. Gentlemen of the AEF, our musical turkey tonight stars Frank Sinatra as Frank Sinatra and Judy Garland as Judy Garland. Our uh, supporting player is Bob Hope. <laughs> A great industrial tycoon of Hollywood, better known as the Wolf of Vine Street. As our scene opens, we find Frank and Bob as two doughboys lost on Gruesome Island of the South Pacific. They're starving. 
little hunger music, please. Strictly from hunger, all right. Hey, Sinatra, it's dawn. Wake up, you sleepy head. Wake up, get out of bed. Wake up, you bum. Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. What are we having for breakfast? Hotcakes and sausages. Hotcakes and sausages. Hotcakes and sausages. Sinatra, wake up. We're lost in this desert island. We're starving. Stop your singing. You're drowning out that vulture up there. <laughs> See, I can hear that vulture singing. When I look at you, I get that old feeling. <laughs> Don't worry, pal. I'll find something to eat. Sinatra, quit biting my wrist. <laughs> Boy, am I hungry. You know, Bob, when I look at you, I always feel like singing. I've got you under my skin. <laughs> I've been eating K-rations. You wouldn't like me. <laughs> hey, Frank, listen. Holy smoke, how did you get on this island? You probably heard a rumor they had silk stockings here. <laughs> but no kidding, Judy, how'd you get here? I didn't ask you how you got that piano here, did I? <laughs> Actually. <laughs> Actually, Bob, I'm lost. I haven't got my lipstick and I'm really lost. You see, I've been playing the gruesome islands on a USO tour, but I got a call from MGM Casting to come back for retakes, and I... Never mind about that stuff. Did you bring anything to eat? Yeah, Judith, what have you got on you besides what you've got on you? Be <laughs> bad, boy. Oh, gosh, fellas, I was going to ask you the same thing. Hurry, Sinatra, I'll have a hamburger with onions. Are you kidding? We're starving, Judy. Don't I look hungry? Yes, don't you? <laughs> look desperate. He's swaying back and forth. Bob, he's going to swoon. Forget it. He thinks this is the hit parade. <laughs> but kids, we got to do something because, well, I, I hate to tell you this, but they're never going to find us. They'll find me, all right. Frank, what makes you so sure they'll find you here? Listen, those Bobby Sock girls can find you anywhere. <laughs> No, but Bob's right, Frank. We've got to do something. Robert, what do you suggest now that we're lost? Let's get lost. <laughs> lost in each other's arms. Don't you do it, Judy, because I know that you know a wolf's nose in sheep's clothes. And I know that you know that Robert hopes that so-and-so, so Judy, don't you do it.
folks, Frankie, because who's afraid of the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf, the big bad wolf? Yeah, that's the idea, honey. Let's give this guy Sinatra the quick brush, huh? <laughs> Say, Hope, I've got a suggestion for you. Why don't you go read your scrapbook from the last war? I'll take over here from now on. Watch it, Buster. This is my girl you're talking to. And when you talk to Judith, I want you to... Speak low. (laughs) Frankie, speak low to her. (laughs) Hey, Hope. (laughs) Come here. As far as I'm concerned, you came to me from out of nowhere. Be a good scout. Go back and stay there. Oh, now, don't quarrel, fellas, because I must admit that you'll never know, boys, how much I miss you. You'll never know just how much I care. Gee, you're singing about us, Judy? I'm singing about that hamburger with onions. (laughs) But seriously... Seriously, I could fall in love with one of you This kid's got one in his pocket over here No, seriously, I could fall in love with one of you But I want a a man who'll spend money on me Oh, shoo, 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 baby Shoo, 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 baby Bye-bye, baby. Haul your papers off to the seventh field. Ah, I thought so. Frankie, what'll you give me? I can't give you anything but love. (laughs) Beauty, that's the only thing I've plenty of, my Judy. No sales. Out. But Judy, what do you want money for? What do you want to buy? I want to buy a paper doll that I can call my own A doll that other girlies cannot steal It's a fine thing, Hope. Now she doesn't want either of us. I always knew there'd be days like this because My mama done told me <laughs> When I was a knee pants my mama done told me What'd she tell you, vitamin B1? What'd she tell We talk And give you the big eye Uh-huh And when the sweet talking's done <laughs> a, a woman's a prune face What? <laughs> what <laughs> worry some things Who'll learn you to sing The, the blues In the night This <laughs> phone guys are hopeless, but I'm stuck with you on a desert island, so put your arms around me, fellas, hold me tight, cuddle up and cuddle up with all your might. So you're going to move into the romance department, huh? No, just wanted to get warm. Uh, Let's go, Bob. (laughs) Let's get out of here, Bob. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute, fellas, please wait, because, well, I've got something that will make you both very happy. What's that, Judy? Yes, sir, this is going to make you both very happy. The blues of the night. Cheesy! <laughs> Yikes! Oh, Crosby's theme song. Crosby, why, that big ham. Judy, give me that record. Wait a minute, Hope, give it to me. Here, here's your half, Sinatra. <laughs> Thank you.
fellas. Uh, 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 just a minute, Hope. I represent Local 47 of the Lovers of Truth. How did you get off that desert island? We thumbed a ride home in the Crosby Stork. And coming in here... <laughs> oh, that's a big one. We all got on. Coming right in here to ride tandem on one of your favorite command performance tunes, Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra singing Embraceable You. Embrace it, kids. <laughs> Embrace me, my sweet embrace of you. Embrace me, my silk and lace of you. Just one look at you, my heart grew in me. You and you alone bring out the gypsy. That's it, fellas. Thanks a lot for having me again and again, and catch you all later. Same here, Frank. This is Judy, fellas. Call on me anytime, and love and stuff from home. And this is your native runner, gang. <laughs> a fat one, of course, but I, I hope to be pumping a lot of your hands one of these days soon. In the meantime, good luck from command performance, and many thanks in the USA.
final pitch, and coming up with a G2, the command performance is arranged in cooperation with the Hollywood Victory Committee and produced for all of you in the AEF and the United Nations by the Armed Forces Radio Service. The week of February 13, 1944, began with the Allies raiding Hong Kong and giving supplies to French resistance fighters. The next day, a British submarine sank a German U-boat in a rare Pacific theater battle involving Germans. On Tuesday the 15th, the Soviets began their first offensive in the Battle of Narva, while a Japanese cruiser was torpedoed by a U.S. submarine. By the middle of the week, the Battle of Korsun Cherkassy Pocket ended in a Soviet victory with German forces fleeing for their lives. American forces launched Operation Hailstone, a massive attack against a Japanese naval and air base in the Caroline Islands. As that was happening, the U.S. scored an important victory against Japan in the Battle of Caravia Bay. Simultaneously, 800 Allied planes raided Berlin. The Germans would counter two days later by shelling London in the heaviest bombing of the British capital since 1941. This helped lead to NBC's War Telescope news program on Saturday, February 19th, entitled Britain is a Fortress. It took to the air at 1.45 p.m. from WEAF in New York. From London, the National Broadcasting Company presents War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. War Telescope features Elmer Peterson of NBC London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. For his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London, this is Elmer Peterson in London. There was a time here in Britain when people had only the one aim of turning this country into a fortress. A time when the question of how long the war would end was far more important than the question of how long it would last. But this is 1944, not 1940. Now this country is both a fortress and an arsenal. It is more than capable of defending itself. It also has become the assembly field for soldiers, munitions, and equipment to be used in time in one of the greatest offensive operations the world has ever known. Instead of those days of waiting for the enemy to attack, we have days now of waiting for new attacks against the enemy. And as the winter days go by, the tension here is tightening, partly in anticipation of the day when the great attack begins, and partly because the British people expect further punishment of war before the war is finished. And since they expect that, their desire is to get it over with. Once the invasion of Western Europe is underway, once the great and final battle has been started, the people here in Britain will find some relief from this strain of waiting for things to happen. But at the moment, this strain is very much with them, encouraged by events such as those of last night, when the Germans tried a fire raid on London. It was not a successful raid. It was a spectacular raid, with flares and searchlights and sprays of rocket shells going up with the enemy dropping a considerable number of incendiary bombs, with a sky festooned with ribbons of light, with your ears deafened at times by the continuous reverberating thunder of London's great anti-aircraft guns. What fires were started were brought under control quickly. In one way, it was just another raid, and the people here have known many of them. But more and more, the reaction to these German raids develops the question, is this the beginning of the final German reprisal? Is this the beginning of the attacks on this country 
with which the Germans hoped to block the invasion of Western Europe. It's a healthy attitude, this. It reflects the basically realistic attitude which the British people still retain toward the war, when all is said and done. We have had our periods of over-optimism here in Britain, our periods of believing that victory was just around the corner. We have had our predictions that the end was not far off. But few, if any, Britons have ever thought that final victory would be achieved without further, further penalty upon this country. Britain has become a fortress, it's true. But living in a fortress does not mean that you are immune from attack. And this is something the British people are fully aware of. They were aware of it last night as the fire services battled the fires that were started. They were aware of it as for minutes on end the sky above was pockmarked with bursting shrapnel and its quiet broken by the whine of airplane engines. But this much is clear. Whatever attacks the Germans do manage to make against this country in the future, the defenses of this country are ready and waiting. No matter what the Germans can put forth out of ingenuity and resourcefulness, and desperation for that matter, there will be effective countermeasures here in Britain. Among other things, it's announced that at least three enemy aircraft were brought down last night over their own bases on the continent. They were brought down by RAF planes which were over the continent for the specific purpose of knocking down those planes. Because further evidence of how British defenses against air raids include more than guns, but also some highly efficient night intruder squadrons. It's an unusual task in many ways that these night intruder squadrons have. And today I'd like to introduce to you to a young American who has a share in this. He's unusual himself, this young American, in that he's one of the few American airmen doing this sort of work. He's Lieutenant James Luma of Helena, Montana, a member of the 8th Air Force, but attached to a Canadian squadron, a squadron of these night intruders. His plane is the Mosquito. His particular battleground is the pitch darkness of the sky above German airfields on the continent. His specific task is to shoot down German bombers and night fighters as they returning to their own airfields after raids on this country. Lieutenant Luma is 21 years old. He's fairly tall with curly black hair and deep-set brown eyes. He joined up with the Canadian Air Forces when he was 18. Today, at 21, we present him to you as a veteran airman, a young gentleman of the 8th Air Force, who rides through the night on missions as difficult and hazardous as any, although that's something... He won't admit freely. Before we let Lieutenant Luma do the talking, I'd like to give you a better picture of what he sees and does when he's in action. He goes into action, remember, when there's a raid on this country, when the news comes through that German planes are on their way over. At his airfield, Lieutenant Luma gets his orders to scramble. In a matter of minutes, he's boiling his way across the English Channel. As he leaves, British anti-aircraft guns and searchlights may be in action. He goes away from the fighting over here to get set for his own particular brand of fighting, namely to get Jerry at home base when Jerry comes racing back to airfields on the continent. And, Lieutenant Luma, as I understand it, you managed to get at Jerry now and then on these night intruder operations. Uh, yes, our squadron has knocked quite a few down. Well, you've got two to your credit, I understand. Uh, yes, we got them both over enemy territory. My navigator and myself, that is. Well, to me, Lieutenant, this job of flying at night in a plane as powerful and fast as a mosquito must provide some strange sensations. Uh, yeah, it does. It's a highly concentrated sort of work. That is, there's lots to do in flying and trying to find enemy planes in the dark. The sky is an awfully big place to go looking around at night. It's easy enough at times to find the airfields where the German planes are going to land. They usually light it up. Jerry planes try to sneak in, of course, with their lights off. And 
and occasionally a German pilot will think he's safe and turn his lights off. That makes it fairly easy. Well, how can you tell, Lieutenant, when you've hit one of these German planes? Oh, you can tell easily enough. It's like watching a bit of dark shadow explode. Flames up, and then you see the flame going down. Well, it's like sort of watching someone throw a big torch out of a high window. Afterwards, you can see the flames scattered about on the ground below you, just as though someone had kicked a campfire around. Well, what impression do you get, Lieutenant, of a raid on this country, as you see it from the air? It doesn't seem very real for the most part. And when we go out, we can look up into the night and see ak shells exploding around enemy planes, make little yellow puffs of color. On the ground, there's a patchwork of little bits of flame. Sort of reminds you of a Fourth of July celebration back home. We don't get more than a quick look at anything like that. It's when we happen to find ourselves going over a blacked-out German airfield or a German ak ship that we get our share. Because we're flying fairly low, as a rule, we draw light flak. A lot of it is tracer bullets, which cut all sorts of fascinating patterns. Mostly red, but some green and yellow and white. All of which can cause you trouble, I take it. Yes, unfortunately. If it's behind you, you don't worry much. If it's coming up in front of you, it's bad. If it's coming up in front of you and going down behind you, it's really bad. But on the whole, our particular job is fairly safe. Mm-hmm. That's what you say. In that connection, Lieutenant, and speaking of these very mild adventures of yours... What would you consider your closest experience in this night intruder work? I think the time we went in at the wrong place on one of our first trips and got over an airfield and plenty of flak. In our efforts to get out, I smashed our compass. And in getting back to home, we ran over another airfield and got some more of the same. We were really glad to get home that time. I don't blame you. Well, now, you must work fairly fast in getting off the ground when you start off on these night intruder operations. Yeah, we have to figure a course out and get off our own airfield in a very short time. Well, it's a very effective work you're doing, Lieutenant. It does have a psychological effect on the Luftwaffe. Isn't that true? <clears throat> yes, that is true. One reason the Jerry pilots are in a hurry to get back to their own fields is that they want to get to those fields before we do. Well, that's a brief picture of what Lieutenant James Luma of Helena, Montana, is doing over here. Good luck to you, Lieutenant, and to the other members of your Canadian squadron. There's no question, after all, but what we can expect more raids on this country, and we know you'll be doing your part against them. The Lieutenant Elmer Peterson interviewed was James Forrest Luma, born on August 27, 1922, in Helena, Montana. At 18, he was too young to enter flight training for the U.S., so he signed up for the Royal Canadian Air Force and was sent to England. A month after this broadcast, Lieutenant Luma was involved with only one other pilot, in an air raid that saw three German planes shot down and 17 others retreat in flames. Overall, he shot down five enemy planes in combat and was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for his efforts. Later this year, he was transferred to a U.S. Army Air Forces squadron, serving until July of 1945. James Luma lived to be 96, passing away February 4, 2019, just shy of 75 years to the date of giving this interview to Elmer Peterson. And how London burns today. Another view here on this matter is that the Germans may be faking their accounts of raids on this country to test British reaction to new devices and weapons the Germans may be using. Be this as it may, we should be getting more and more evidence here that there is still a lot of fight left in the Germans. They may spring some unpleasant surprises during this war before it's over. We can, writes one London paper today, Expect more raids, and probably on a larger scale. There is much that can be done to tighten up and still further improve defenses here.
and no effort must be spared to render London as impregnable as humanly possible. But there's another side to this. It should be borne in mind that the Germans are by no means going to have a free hand in whatever hopes and plans they have of prolonging this war. What is developing very rapidly now, as one sees the matter here in London, is a situation in which the German high command is going to be forced to make new and difficult decisions. Decisions such as they never contemplated. Decisions which will complicate their defensive strategy. Up until now, the Germans have had what's known as defensive initiative. They've been able to use their reserves of men and planes and equipment with a certain amount of exactness. They've been able to take their time about making most of their decisions. And they've had time to move their forces here and there around the European fortress. But the pressure of circumstance, both military and political, is now closing in against this German defensive strategy. With Finland and Norway a good example. There's every likelihood the German high command may soon be forced to make a rush withdrawal of their troops in North Finland and North Norway. In fact, there are reports that their withdrawal from North Finland is already underway. And once these withdrawals start, the German high command will be involved in an endless chain of decisions. Their problem of balancing their reserves against the weakest points in their defense lines will become more and more difficult. It's a game that the German high command will play as long as it can. But every month that passes now, the game will become more difficult. And the great and deciding factor in the end is going to be the Allied air offensive against Germany in the months to come. The day after this broadcast, the Allies launched Big Week, a six-day strategic bombing campaign against the Third Reich, while Erwin Rommel completed a four-day inspection tour of Germany's Atlantic Wall, which stretched from southern France all the way to northern Norway. He reported to Hitler that the German coastal defenses were up to all requirements, but the Germans knew that the day of a full-scale Western European invasion by the Allied powers was coming. He will undoubtedly be questioned about Russian-Polish relationships, which show signs of improvement. For more and more here in Britain, one goes conscious now of the problems of peace. Not only the question of new frontiers and the immediate requirements of restoring order, but the question of what the people of Europe are going to be like after four years and more of German occupation. The British Weekly, The Economist, takes up this matter in an article called Outlaw Europe, pointing out that the coming invasion of Western Europe is more than a military matter. It's also something that will add to the great social and political upheaval in Europe. The Economist doesn't paint a very pretty picture of what we may find in Europe when the fighting is over. What it asks have these years of war, the looting, the bombing, the scorched earth policies, the black market, the outlaw bands of underground patriots. What have all these things done to the normal life and the normal values of ordinarily law-abiding people? What about the deep and lasting hatred that have been given to some people? What about the confusion of ideas as to what people want? What about the radical ideas that have developed? It's something that makes you conscious, after all, of the difference between planning the post-war future here in Britain and America and planning that same future for European countries. Here, plans are going ahead for all sorts of reforms, in state medical services, new educational facilities and the like. And there's great interest here in the newly announced plans for the switchover of America from war to peace. Here, the post-war problems will not be too difficult, after all. But in Europe, as The Economist points out, the problems may be tragic in many ways, largely because the people of Europe, in their desperate struggle for bare survival, have had so little time and energy for political thought or thinking ahead. This is Elmer Peterson in London, saying goodbye on this program until this time next week. You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by Elmer Peterson. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Bye.
We never gave them any trouble because uh, Carol Carroll didn't write that kind of stuff or anything that was going to be sensible, and you didn't want to get in a long argument with them. Now, a fellow like Hope, he had problems because, you know, a joke's a joke. And if you get a good one and it's uh, on the borderline, you hate to give up on it. Well, we never had any problem in that direction, but the censorship was very rigid. The Bob Hope Show, a special rebroadcast for the American Armed Forces and their allies with Jerry Colonna, Vera Vague, Francis Langford, Stan Kenton's orchestra, and Bob Hope. <laughs> On February 15, 1944, Bob Hope broadcast his program from Santa Ana's Classification Center. His guest of honor was none other than good friend Bing Crosby. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, youth is a wonderful thing. Well, here we are today at the Santa Ana Classification Center in pre-flight school. That's like kindergarten with washouts. I won't say some of these cadets are young, but the instructors here have to teach them and change them at the same time. <laughs> I'm just kidding, honest fellas. <laughs> I said to one cadet, congratulations on the second anniversary. He said, don't let these rosy cheeks fool you, I'm 18. I found out why they call it Santa Ana. On payday, these boys go into town feeling like Santa and go looking around for Anna. <laughs> yes, sir. And when they graduate here, these fellas will get to fly in a PT plane. That's the combat pilot's version of one of Crosby's horses. And they really teach a lot about flying here in those classes. In fact, they teach you so much, I saw two pigeons sitting on a windowsill taking notes. <laughs> and I want to tell you, they teach you to fly in a hurry here. One fella fought zeros over New Guinea for two weeks before they found out he just stopped by to deliver the colonel's laundry. These flyers have to know lots of math, and these boys are very industrious students. They spend all week studying figures, then on weekends they go into Los Angeles and look for homework. <laughs> yes, sir. And you know, when they get here in camp, all cadets are under quarantine. In civilian life, quarantine means you've got something. Here it means you don't have anything and can't even talk to one on the telephone. And when these fellas do get out of quarantine, I don't know if they're anxious to get to Hollywood for their first date or not, but last Saturday a motorist stopped and offered one of them a ride, and the fellas said, no thanks, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I won't say they're anxious to get to town, but I saw one Jeep carrying so many cadets it could hardly clear the telegraph wires. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> I don't mean... I don't mean that these fellas like girls. But one of them was sitting in a Link trainer the other day, and a blonde walked by. It's the first time in history that a Link trainer ever took off and stunted over Balboa. <laughs> one girl stopped in the highway the other day to give the fellas a lift, and about 20 guys jammed into the car. It got so crowded, she had to start putting some of them in the back seat. 
there's one man on this program who really knows all about flying, that famous aeronautics expert, aviator and inventor, Professor J. Hot Pilot Colonna. Say, Hope. Yeah. I'm, I'm coming in now. Watch this perfect landing. See? Three points. <laughs> Sounded more like 3.2. So you're a... Uh, so you're a flyer, Kelowna. Yes, Hope, and I always fly upside down. You fly upside down? How come? No suspenders. Keeps my pants up. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, where did you get your background for flying? From my mother. She joined the Air Forces when I was just a child. Well, how did your mother happen to join the Air Forces? The old wardrobe man at the Follies put helium in her bubble. You know, you certainly are living proof that man is only a few steps ahead of monkey. Well, walk fast. I'll wait for you. <laughs> well, tell me, if you're a pilot, Kelowna, have you received any decorations? Oh, yes. The Air Medal and 400 Oak Leaf Cluster. <laughs> Four, 400 Oak Leaf Clusters for flying? Nope. Oak tree fell on me. <laughs> I want you to tell these students some of your experiences. You went to flying school yourself, didn't you? Yes, Hope, and I soloed the first day. The first day? Mm-hmm. My plane did battle rolls, group the loops, and then several tailspins. Your plane did that? Well, wasn't that dangerous? Yes, and twice it almost hit my parachute. <laughs> well, Professor, what do you think of jet propulsion? Oh, it's all right, but only on a doctor's prescription. <laughs> talking about speed flying. What do you know about it? Well, I had a plane that could fly 500 miles an hour. Well, did you ever go out for any records? Yes, just the other day. I stepped across the street to get Mersey uh... <laughs> Well, look, Colonna, you don't sound like a pilot to me. What kind of combat experience have you had? Well, I sank three Jap warships, bombed Berlin 15 times, and downed 50 Messerschmitts. Then I had to quit. You had to quit? Why, Colonna? Fell out of my bunk at the Santa Ana barracks. <laughs> February of 1944, Frances Langford was 28 years old. She grew up in Florida and originally trained as an opera singer. A tonsillectomy changed her range, and she shifted her vocal approach to a more contemporary big band popular music style. As a teenager, cigar manufacturer Eli Witt heard her sing at an American Legion party and hired her to sing on a local radio show he sponsored. In 1931, Langford moved to Hollywood, appearing on Luella Parsons' radio show. She was soon heard by Rudy Valley, and in 1935 she made her film debut in Every Night at Eight. That year she became a regular performer on Dick Powell's radio show, which Bob Hope joined in 1937. When the Pepsodent program launched in 1938, she began a long-term engagement with Hope. An empty 
singing No Love, No Nothing. That was swell, too. You, too, Stan Kenton. Grand work back there. Give me something. Thank you very much. <laughs> Francis, and say, you, lo you look wonderful tonight, Francis. You look like a letter from home to these boys. Do you think so? Yeah, they're certainly trying to read between the lines. No, these men aren't second lieutenants. They haven't made the grade yet. Well, they have as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Miss Vague, you have a pre-flight mind on a pre-war body. <laughs> Civil war. Uh, oh, oh, you're the sweetest thing. Don't be afraid to look at me. <laughs> Tell me, did you just get out of a link? You seem a little jerkier than usual tonight. <laughs> uh, why should I waste time on you with all these handsome men here? Oh, but Miss Vague, these cadets are too young for you. Why, they're nothing but babes in the woods. Uh, really? Sounds like a wonderful forest to get lost in. <laughs> with these cadets here, Mr. Hope. They just voted me their pinball girl. <laughs> pinball? You mean pin-up girl, Miss Vane. Uh, no, pinball. They spend a nickel on you and expect you to light up. Mr. Hope, don't you think I made a good hostess at the party? Oh, yes, you did, Miss Vane, but you shouldn't have been so anxious to play post office. What makes you think I was anxious to play post office? Well, you were the only one there wearing a mailman's uniform. <laughs> oh, you darling. Where did you get that gig? Uh, <laughs> Miss Vague, you mean gag. A gig is a black mark against your record. I know. Where did you get that gig? <laughs> Miss Vague, I noticed you didn't dance with any of the cadets at your party. Oh, well, goodness, would you dance with someone who hugged you so hard you thought your ribs would break? No, I wouldn't. Oh, well, neither would they. 
Yes, it's too bad you didn't get to dance with them. Those cadets sure know how to rumba. Rumba? Yeah, you know, that's when the front of you acts like it's in quarantine while the back of you makes like it's just got a six-hour pass. <laughs> Say, but you didn't dance with me once all evening. Oh, well, I know I'm sorry, Mr. Hope, but I'm not very good at the square dance. Uh, <laughs> well, I can't understand it. You have the figure for it. Boy. <laughs> Tell me, have you changed the water on your brain lately or aren't the goldfish fussing? <laughs> oh, and really, it was a wonderful party, but one of those students didn't want to kiss me. He said kissing spreads cold. One of the students said kissing spreads cold? Yes. Well, what'd you do? I just grabbed him around the neck and yelled, shoot the flu to me, Stu! <laughs> Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, a fellow brought here today by petition of these boys, the man who made Sinatra's mother swoon, Bing Crosby. Will I ever find a girl in my mind, the one who is my ideal? Can you remember where you first laid eyes on Crosby? I think at the Friars Club here, back about 32. I did, and then we yeah. played the Capitol Theater here with Abe Lyman and an act called Cass Mack and Owen, yeah. and we became very good friends because we started working together and doing impressions of the president of the Coca-Cola Company, meeting the president of the Coca-Cola Company on the streets, you know? And I played Pepsi, and we said, hi, hi. <laughs> <laughs> that was... This is, this is the stuff. <laughs> Folks, this is how you get started with a little gas, that's all. <laughs> no, I mean it. And then, oh, they died at that, you know. And, you've and later on, I did it with Cary Grant, this whole routine for the Victory Caravan, you know? Yeah. And two farmers meeting on the street, you know? In February 1944, Hope Crosby and Dorothy L'Amour were wrapping filming of Road to Utopia, the fourth in their series of Road to Films. Written by Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, the film is about two vaudeville performers at the turn of the 20th century. They go to Alaska to make their fortune. Along the way, they find a map to a secret gold mine. While shooting wrapped in 1944, the film wasn't released until February 27, 1946. Its screenplay was nominated for an Academy Award the next year. It should. This is where your stork got his. May I say that you're solid tonight, Buster, really solid. Yes, sir. All suet, but solid. <laughs> All suet? <laughs> you should talk with that built-in ball turret here, Captain. <laughs> That's quite a pot you're toting there. <laughs> well, at least my lid fits. <laughs> I know, but you'll have to give up that girdle sooner or later. They'll be around <laughs> for it. Robert, Robert, you're just the same as ever. I am? Yes, and you have my sympathy. <laughs> well, don't ask me. I want to ask you, do you want to talk about our charity golf match we played at Long Beach Sunday, or would it be too embarrassing? Embarrassing? Who's embarrassed? You can't beat a guy that greases his ball before each drive. <laughs> Gee. I didn't grease my ball. I just rubbed a little yeast on it so it would rise faster. That's all. <laughs> 
And maybe you'd improve your game if you brought along a few golf balls. Oh, you think that'd help? Sure, after all, how far can you drive a stork egg? <laughs> you didn't even tip the caddy who carried your bag. Well, at least I had a bag. You know, you took all the class out of the fair. Walking around with those three wood clubs and a five iron sticking out of the sag in your pants. <laughs> You should talk about clothes. You look like you're wearing a zoot rainbow right now. Well, and we make a good team. Every rainbow has to have a pot. I guess... <laughs> you know, you should be ashamed to talk like that after all the favors I've been doing for you lately. What favors have you done for me? Well, who do you think got you all those bits in my new road picture? Well, I'm sorry. I'm truly penitent if I forgot to thank you. Oh, think nothing of it. You'd do the same for me if you were on top. The boy's bleeding, is this picture we're doing about Alaska thing. I thought it was called The Road to Utopia. Say, where is Utopia? Any place where you can reach out and tap Dorothy Lamore. But I... Uh, <laughs> I I've got to stop, though. It's habit-forming. Look, uh... <laughs> why is Dottie pouting at me on the set these days? Do you pouting? think she's jealous because I've got the best dressing room? You got a room to dress in now? <laughs> yeah, you can't depend on that early morning fog anymore. <laughs> But what a story that road to Utopia has. Just Great think, guy. Bing, there we were in Alaska, surrounded by ice and snow, nearly frozen stiff. And then Dorothy Lamour came along. Yeah, it was the quickest thaw in history. <laughs> Say, you know what Dottie was telling me? That you have developed into quite a hectic screen lover. Oh, did Lamour show you my scenes? Showed me her x-rays. <laughs> Say, but isn't it quite a coincidence, Bing, you're working in the picture about the frozen north? What do you mean? Where's the coincidence? Well, it wasn't so long ago that Sinatra put you on ice. <laughs> That was the unkindest. Tell me, does Frank Sinatra worry you much? Not at all. That boy's hot, and I hope he goes places. Then he'll even be hotter. <laughs> but actually, really, we're, we're in no competition, Frankie and I. He's got a different type of listener. Naturally, they change each generation. <laughs> oh, now, Bob. You're bitter. He and I are just a couple of singers, and we both believe in fair competition. Well, when did you two hit the peace pipe? The other day, we got very chummy. You did? Yes, we even agreed to quit scratching out each other's names off the jukeboxes. <laughs> well, are you living up to the agreement? I certainly am. Of course, nothing was said about crawling inside and filing down the needle. <laughs> well, what do you say, Chubb? Let's show the folks what happens when two slick chicks wait at the radio station for Frankie. Let's go. Some music, All Professor right. Kesson. Here we go. Hortense. Is this the stage door where Frankie comes out? Does he walk through this alley, actually? Yes, he does. Oh, <laughs> oh stop that. <laughs> Hortense, you're getting your lips all muddy. Yeah. <laughs> Gee, I'm excited. <laughs> How can you tell? My pivot tooth keeps jumping out of my braces. <laughs> Gee, where doesn't that Frankie... Ah! But doesn't Frankie... Ah! But Frankie Reed. Ah! Oh, that name! <laughs> he, uh, he really sends me. 
How about you? <laughs> yes, even more than my yo-yo. <laughs> Say, wasn't it fun sitting in the front row and looking up at him for three whole shows? Come on, Agnes, let's go in again for one more show. I can't, Hortense. Why not? My squealer's worn out. <laughs> I saw Frankie once and he didn't even look at me. Really? Well, what'd you do? For two weeks, I wore my bobby socks at half mast. <laughs> um, look, Hortense. Ooh, there's Frankie. Ah, I'm sent. I'm sent. <laughs> oh, shuckins. It's only Bing Crosby. Well, here I am back again. <laughs> Say, when Frankie comes out the door, I'm going to wave at him. Here he comes now. There he goes. Wave, wave. Wave, <laughs> There's no use talking, Agnes. I've got to take some stuff off this charm bracelet. <laughs> and here's Francis. My heart tells me this is just a flame. Yet you say our love means everything Do you mean what you are saying? Or is this a little game you're playing? I will cry again Lips that kiss like yours Could lie again If I'm fool enough to see this through Will I be sorry if I do?
the Bob Hope Show is rebroadcast especially for you soldiers, sailors, Marines, and Coast Guardsmen of the United Nations. Now, Stan Kenton, Bob's music master, steps up baton in hand to lead his orchestra in a musical after show. Okay, Stan, take over.
rebroadcast as a presentation of the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. In those days on radio, there was live, wasn't it, the radio show? It certainly was. So if you blew a joke, you went oh, right on. Oh, it was fun. And you used yeah. to have all the tricks in radio, because, you know, if, you'd, if a joke didn't play, you used to go, <laughs> yeah. kiss it, you know, and all that stuff. But I loved it. There the was no, no makeup, and you just walked out of the studio, and you dropped it in there, you know, and you walked. Yeah. It was just beautiful. Do you know, when I was a kid, they would always say, uh, hey, did you hear about how Bob Hope got cut off last week or something, like a censor? We yeah. decide that yeah. a show. Yeah, yeah. Now, how could that happen? The show was live, and the joke was already told. No, we had to submit the script to him. You know, and they'd start uh, screaming. And we, a funny thing about us, we used to do a, a preview on the night before, very uh -huh. long preview, then cut it down. And it had a lot to do with the success of our show, because we had a lot of writers. You know, I found out after playing around and trying to get everything out of college humor, you know, and switching jokes around, that mm -hmm. it'd be nice to write, uh, hire some writers. You know. So I finally wound up with 12 writers, the greatest talent you ever saw. And we used to do all this stuff, and then we'd cut it down. We'd go to the agency and cut it down, and the next day we'd go on. Well, the censor had already heard some of the jokes, so he'd come in and say, you can't do that joke. And would you think that they would try and bring out a vice president from New York because you wanted to say, we want to help Kate Smith get her moon over the mountain? <laughs> You, know, no, you can well, say that in church today. <laughs> that's right. You know, but that's one of the lines that, that we really went to the mat with, you know. We were trying to do things that would get attention, and we'd, uh, we'd all stand down the end of the hallway, you know, and, and the censor would come down, and 12 guys say, Oh, here comes old Dirty Mind. <laughs> can you imagine walking into the mouth of 12 writers? And uh, we find that the censor finally has to be transferred to San Francisco. And I doubt if there's any one of those jokes that you couldn't easily do now. And, uh, oh. Nothing. We'd never do. You know, because in those days, the standards were different. Yeah. You would never think of saying jerk on the air. 25, a jerk was dirty. That was considered vulgar. You would never say that, you know? Yeah. And all at once, somebody slipped it in. Hey, jerk, saw that. And you were on the way. Now it's, it's a straight line. It used to be a four-letter word. Yeah, right. It's amazing. On Tuesday, February 27, 1944, the Bob Hope Show took to the air with a special broadcast for the Coast Guard. 
The guest was Carol Landis. The Bob Hope Show, a special rebroadcast for the American Armed Forces and their allies with Gary Colonna, Vera Vague, Francis Langford, Stan Kenton's orchestra, and Bob Hope. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this is Bob Coast Guard Hope. Yes, sir, tonight we're broadcasting for the Coast Guard. These are the boys who guard the coast, and they really guard it. <laughs> but it's great to be here with the Coast Guard. That's a fighting group, and efficient. This Coast Guard outfit did such a great job during the Prohibition rum running days <laughs> that W.C. Fields almost died of malnutrition. Anything in the ocean not signed up with the Allies hasn't a chance with the Coast Guard. Every morning, whales come in to report their positions. <laughs> Coast Guardmen guardsmen are always with the invasion forces. In fact, by the time the Marines get a situation well in hand, the Coast Guard is charging tourists ten cents apiece to sail by and look at them. my audience is buttered on. And the beach patrol of the Coast Guard live in little huts right down on the beach, and it's very convenient. Every time the tide comes in, they get their laundry done, whether it needs it or not. And they don't call them huts, they call them hutlets. A hutlet, that's sort of an open-air oxygen tent. Each man patrols ten miles of beach, and they pass by so regularly, each clam on the West Coast pulls his neck in on the hour and half hour. And I don't know if those guys down there on the beaches get lonesome or not, but one fella spent three nights in a row trying to date his own echo. <laughs> I asked one guy on the beach patrol if he had to walk very much and said, I don't know, but when I enlisted, I had feet. <laughs> and the men on the beach patrol do a lot of rescue work, too. One sentry heard a girl yell, help, help, and he ran over, but before he got there, the guy drove away. I, uh... fast car. I went for, uh... <laughs> I went for a ride today in a Coast Guard cutter, and it was a trifle rough. A trifle rough, that's a nautical expression meaning very invigorating, and don't crowd, I was at the rail first. <laughs> I won't, I won't say there was much of a breeze, but it was the first time I ever spit in my own eyes. one of their five-inch guns. I don't want to brag and say I hit anything, but you know the city hall here at Long Beach? Well, it looks just as nice as San Pedro. <laughs> there's one... And now I want you to meet Professor Colonna, a fellow Coast Guardsman who knows all about boats. And I'll we'll be with you in a minute, Hope. I'm over here looking over a lifeboat. Looking over a lifeboat? Oh, Professor, kiss me again. Well, provisioned, aren't they? <laughs> Professor, how come you know so much about the sea? 
My father was part old tar. Part old tar. What was the other part? Seven. Have you ever had any narrow escapes with old man Neptune? Oh, no. In fact, I have never even been out with his daughter. Uh, well, where did you get in the Coast Guard, Colonna? Six months ago when I went down and enlisted in the spa. <laughs> the spas are all women. If you're in the spas, you're the only man in a group of 8,000 women. Ah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Happy little Donata P. <laughs> well, tell me, as a seaman, have you ever been on a yawl? Say pardon? Yawl, yawl. Oh, southerner, eh? Yeah. <laughs> No, but uh, I know a lot about yachts. Well, what was your most exciting experience as a yachtman, Professor? I once had a schooner capsized on me. Your schooner capsized on you? What'd you do? Wiped off the bar and ordered another. <laughs> I truthfully hope I had a little accident during my last voyage. You see, I, it was so foggy, I ran into a bell girl. Kelowna, no, no, you mean bell boy. No, bell girl, manpower shortage. <laughs> Well, was it a bad accident, Kelowna? Yes, Hope. The ship started to sink. I waited a few minutes and then yelled, Women and children first. Kelowna, you waited a few minutes and then yelled, Women and children first. Why didn't you yell right away? Busy putting on my diaper. <laughs> and here goes Stan Kenton, our hot counselor. Hope's radio cast from this era is his most famous along with Jerry Colonna and Francis Langford. The squeaky man-crazed Vera Vague, voiced by Barbara Jo Allen, was tremendous. Blanche Stewart and Elvia Allman played high society nitwits Brenda and Gobina, modeled after real-life socialites Brenda Frazier and Gobina Wright Jr. Wright filed suit, but settled, Hope remembered, when he invited R on the show as a guest. Wendell Niles was often Hope's announcer for Pepsodent. And uh, Wendell Niles was the man who said, and now the um, Lever Brothers, the makers of Pepsodent, present Bob Hope. Wendell, glad yes. to have you with us today. You, you, announced, nice to you announced for Bob Hope for how long? Uh, I think we did about seven or eight years. <laughs> I have the scars to prove it. It was a long, <laughs> all through the war. All through the world. So you would travel with Bob from camp to camp then in all those shows? Yeah, huh? I didn't go overseas with him because I had to stay and do the uh, shows. We were on uh, for Pepsi. Mm -hmm. so, no summer break on those no. Hope shows? No, usually no, not. When he was traveling, usually I did the shows locally. That's hard for me when I try to think. <laughs> Something always happens. You're not alone, kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> Something to be said for no. Oh, there's a lot of fun. We have great. Bob just lives two blocks from me down in, mm -hmm. over in uh, Chaluka Lake. So you're still, you get to see him every once in a while. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, uh, he's great. He's uh, two years older than I am, and you know, I <laughs> learned to respect my elders. And he's... <laughs> Wonderful guys. He's, he was a great person to be with all the time. I mean, it was a lot of fun, a lot of laughs. On the Hope shows, as I understand it, there would be a, an hour-long rehearsal in front of an audience, after which they would start editing material for the half-hour show. Didn't that happen for some time? No. Okay, Nothing. this is it. Thank you and good night. <laughs> I can tell you, many times we didn't rehearse at all. I remember so we were the number one show on the air mm -hmm. at that time. I remember many times, like, we'd be doing something like in St. Louis and out of one of those camps, and uh, you get out of a staff car, 
and go on stage and immediately do our show. No rehearsal. Many times, none at all. Just hand you the script and away it would go. Yeah, that's right. We'd had it sometimes to review the script in the staff car, but many times we didn't have any rehearsal. It's always amazing to me, Eddie, to look at New York things and see who did my shows. Like uh, Bill Goodwin gets most of the credit for being in the Hope Show and a few other people. <laughs> I've got a thing uh, they did. Uh, I suppose you guys all did the same thing. They they put out a book on people who were in the Walk of Fame. And I got a nice picture, a big picture, almost a half. And I got two shows that they gave me credit for. And I never heard of either one of them. <laughs> I well, we heard we can we'll rattle off a bunch of your credits. Bob Hope Show, Alum and Abner, uh, The Man Called X with Herbert Marshall. You were on the When a Girl Marries. You ne- uh, announced that show. A Fitch Bandwagon. Yeah, thousands of them. Philip Marlowe, Charlotte Greenwood. What happens if they're not on duty? They chase you. <laughs> hey, you're married to a captain in the Air Force, aren't you? I sure am. Well, let me know if you ever need a ground crew, will you? <laughs> Where's your husband stationed, Carol? Well, I don't know exactly, Bob, but in his last letter, he drew a little picture of himself wearing a grass skirt. That's the clue to where he is, isn't it? I hope so. I'd hate to think it's how he made out in the crap game. (laughs) Uh, How are they treating you over 20th century? Oh, fine, but I'd like a contract with Paramount, too. Uh, do you have any influence Read it slow. Do I have any influence at Paramount? Carol, all I have to do is raise my hand, and you know what happened? What happened? They hand me a broom. Oh, you've been promoted. <laughs> Where are you taking but, your cold from? But, really, I don't blame Paramount, Bob. I've seen some of your pictures. I know. Huh? <laughs> well, I should have more serious parts. Boy, I'd love to do Shakespeare. Oh, I can just see you now. Making an omelet out of Hamlet. For your information, Miss Landis, Paramount had a lot of trouble signing me. I turned up my nose at plenty of contracts. Well, now that you signed, why don't you turn it back down again? <laughs> well, it comes in handy for picking up cigar butts on the beach, anyway. Say, <laughs> Carol, you live right at the beach, don't you? Uh huh. I have a house in Santa Monica. I spent all that summer on the beach. You did? Well, didn't you see me there? I saw you once, Bob, but I didn't want to speak to you. You were too busy selling your hot dogs. (laughs) Carol, did you ever run into one of those coast guardsmen patrolling the beach? Why, yes. Just the other morning, I was going in for a swim, and I saw one pacing up and down the sand, and... Yeah, see all this walking. Sure is hard on my feet. Already wore out three pair of bunions. (laughs) Hello. Oh, hello, tall, dark, and lacking. Uh, wait a minute. You a saboteur? Oh, that's silly. How could I be a saboteur? A saboteur undermines morale and distracts people's minds from their work. You're a saboteur. <laughs> Say, uh, what are your duties here on the beach patrol? I don't know. I never stop walking long enough to find out. When you joined up, you should have told them you joined the Navy to see the world. I did. What did they do? Well, they brought me down here on the beach, pointed, and said, there it is, out there. Mmm. You smell nice. Do you use eau de cologne? Eau de cologne? What's that? 
Oh, you know. When you get through shaving, what do you put on? My underwear. What's the matter? You know what I do? Do you have many adventures when you're patrolling the beach? Yes, quite a few. Last week I stepped in a lobster and he fastened his claw on my big toe. Oh, goodness. Did you lose your toe? Oh, no, I didn't lose it. I got it right here in my pocket. <laughs> Say, uh, mm, have you got a girl? Yeah, I got a picture tattooed on my chest. I'll unbutton my shirt. See, that's her. Oh, she's pretty, isn't she? But what's that bandage doing on her uh, leg? Uh, that's where my dog tag bit her. <laughs> Kind of cute, ain't she? She's very cute, but uh, did she always have those big pouches under her eyes? No, those are my camper bags. <laughs> so how about meeting you tonight? Well, you don't sound very romantic to me. I, uh, I don't think you're my type. Oh, so I'll show you I'm a romantic guy. I'll stand here on the edge of the beach and sing you a tender love ballad. You'll sing me a tender love ballad? Yep, here goes. Oh, man's a dose and dose, a dose and dose and dose and dose and dose Tide came in just in time, didn't it? Right, you gonna sing this to your brother in the coast guard? Yeah, I know you are. When I go
Tonight's broadcast, Bob Hope and the cast will start a tour of the Southern Army camps, airfields, and service bases. First stop, Mobile, Alabama. On hearing this, the governor of California says to the governor of Alabama, We can't lose Bob Hope. You can't lose Bob Hope? No, so you take him. Maybe you can lose him. <laughs> Since he's traveling light, Bob packs almost is all cherished possessions. Nice reading. Thank you. Let's see now. I have nothing to work on. Let's see now. Now my cherished possessions. I have my yo-yo, my cards, loaded dice, and my flashlight with a picture of Betty Grable pasted on the glass. Oh, Miss Murphy! How am I going to get over with that? Alabama, and I just love those southern men. They're so hospital. Miss <laughs> Vade, you mean hospitable. Not when I get through with them. <laughs> oh, dear, I can't wait till they get You know, Mr. Hope, I'm quite footloose. Yes, and the rest of you can stand tightening up, too. <laughs> well, well. You're feeling your oats tonight, aren't you? <laughs> That nose that reached the bottom of any seed bag. <laughs> Look, do you think you like Alabama, Miss Vane? Oh, yes. The last time I was down there, I met one of those real southern colonels. A real genuine southern colonel. Well, what makes you so sure he was a real southern colonel? Well, he had eagles on his shoulders, and they had a mint julep in his car. <laughs> Well, are you going to say goodbye to these post-guardsmen before we leave, Miss Vane? Uh, well, no, I'm not. I'm very angry with these men, Mr. Hope. When we arrived here, they brushed me aside to get the Francis Lankers. Well, that's their job, Miss Vane, to remove all wrecks that interfere with navigation. Oh. I should get rid of an old delivery that's interfering with my career. <laughs> Oh, yes, sir. Oh, you're so cute. <laughs> I suppose it's inherited, Mr. Hope. Every time you make a joke, you're only following in your parents' footsteps. Yeah. Oh, tell me, are all the arrangements made for our transportation, Mr. Hope? Yes, Professor Colonna's down at the railroad station seeing about the ticket. I expect him to phone any minute. Hello? This is him now. Him now? Oh, yes. How are you, him, now? <laughs> are my shirts ready? Uh, hello, now, listen. This is Bob Hope. Oh, Bob Hope. Bob is a city to think. How are you, Hope? Are my shorts ready? <laughs> Stop clowning, Colonna. Did you get the railroad tickets for our trip south? I certainly hope I got them right here to my hand. We go to San Francisco, then to Seattle, Juneau, Madison, Odessa, Winnipeg, and Baltimore, right to Mobile, Alabama. <laughs> well, look, Colonna, I don't want to find fault, but isn't that taking the long way around? What do you do, Hope? It's a troop train, and they all go that way. Yeah. Hello, Bob. Are we almost ready to leave? Yeah, tell me, Francis, you taking everything along in the trip? Oh, not much. Just what you see here. That's everything. <laughs> and I'm uh, underplaying it, too. Who's paying the expenses, Bob? Oh, I'm paying the train expenses, and we'll have the same accommodations as on our last trip. Oh, gosh, and I was hoping this time we'd get to ride inside the train. <laughs> 
dear Patsy, but I hope you won't be offended if I'm a bigger hit than you are in the South. Oh, of course not. You should be right at home in the tobacco country, Miss Figg. An old plug like you. <laughs> Girl, you. <laughs> but you're not really responsible for what you say, dear. I knew the water on your brain had never mixed with all that peroxide. <laughs> oh, well, let's not argue, dear. In a short time, we'll be in Alabama. Goodness, I remember our last trip there. I was a toast to the South, and I was a toast to the South. How about me? Quiet crumb. <laughs> Is Mr. Kenton in his office to come in with us, Mr. Hope? Oh, uh, not us. The musicians don't like the way Bob handled things on the last trip. What's the matter, Skin? I got him on the train, didn't I? Yeah, but you should have got him tickets. Well, I'll let him keep half the tips. I don't know why. <laughs> what about you, Wendell House? What did you think of your accommodation? Can't kick. Can't kick? How can I? In your trunk. Uh... <laughs> Hello? Hello, is this Bob Hope, that great, that sensational, that witty, clever comedian who follows Fibber McGee? Yes, who is this? Say, Hope, remember that $500 you gave me for train tickets? I'm worried about it. Why are you worried about the $500, Cloner? Boss, my point. <laughs> Professor, you should have had our whole trip arranged an hour ago. What's delaying you? What a time to get transportation these days, Hope. Nonsense, Cloner. There's no shortage of transportation. You're at the railroad station now, aren't you? Yes. Well, just go up to the ticket window and say, give me 20 tickets to Mobile, Alabama, please. Okay, Hope. Give me 20 tickets to Mobile, Alabama, please. You want 20 tickets to Alabama. <laughs> 20 tickets. <laughs>
Well, thanks a lot to Captain W.F. Cole, District Coast Guard officer at the Levels Naval District here in Long Beach. Coast Guard has always met tough men and tough little cutters who tackle the oceans on stormy nights to rescue shipwrecked sailors, who bust up icebergs in our shipping lanes and keep friendly beacons burning in lighthouses in New England of the Golden Gate. Always a great name from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Today it's a great name from Italy to the Marshall Islands. For it's the Coast Guard that races up to those beachheads to deliver the fighting Marines. And the Coast Guard that has kept Uncle Sam's harbors free of major catastrophes the past two years. Guarding harbors and vessels against accidents and sabotage to set an amazing wartime record of port security and speed shipping on its way to the battlefront. And it's the Coast Guard that's in there beside the tankers and troop ships tossing ash cans in the U-boats and taking out anything the enemy puts in their way. You know, they've got a little motto in the Coast Guard, Semper Paratus, always ready. And then, mister, whenever there's a tough job to do, you'll find the Coast Guard always ready and willing and able to do it. Good night.
This rebroadcast of the Bob Hope Show is a presentation of the Armed Forces Radio Service. On Friday, February 25th, 1944, Big Week, the Allies' six-day strategic bombing campaign against the Third Reich, ended with a successful bombing of German cities Rostock and Augsburg, as well as several Dutch cities near the German border. Unfortunately, many civilians were killed or left homeless. The Germans also lost more than 350 aircrafts, and most importantly, more than 100 pilots. Meanwhile, two large Japanese ships were torpedoed, killing 5,000 Japanese soldiers, but also 3,500 Japanese laborers and hundreds of Allied POWs. On Saturday the 26th, more than 600 Soviet bombers raided Helsinki. That day at 1.45 p.m., NBC's war telescope signed on. From London, the National Broadcasting Company presents War Telescope, a review of the war week and a forecast of possible developments to come. War Telescope features today John McVeigh of NBC's London staff, a veteran reporter of the European scene. We take you now to London. This is John McVeigh in London. Last week, I had lunch with the foreign minister of a small European country. He knew Germany and the Germans well. His country had, like so many other countries, been invaded and occupied by the Germans. Now, as the Allied armies prepare to rip the Germans loose from his country, restore liberty to his people, certain topics are preoccupying the mind of this allied diplomat. He's typical of not only the people of his own country, but the peoples of other European countries. And because there exists what amounts to a European view of these subjects, I thought I'd tell you about them today. To do that, I'll have to go outside my usual sphere and speak briefly of internal American politics. I do so only because America's internal politics have a greater influence on European thought than you would think at first sight. This week, Europeans have been following the reports of the friction between the executive and the legislative branches of the American government. They noted the temporary break between the president and the Democratic Party leader of the Senate, Senator Barclay. These European observers noted the hesitancy of Americans, as reflected in Congress, to face the problem of paying a larger share of war expenses out of current taxation. And it was with something akin to alarm that these Europeans saw both houses override the president's veto. I don't mean they are alarmed at whether Democrats or Republicans win the next election, or whether Americans pay for the war now or 20 years from now. But they are alarmed at the implications of American internal strife. In the first place, conflict between the branches of the American government means that no European country can count with assurance on any fixed American foreign policy. At international conferences or private meetings, the President or State Department representatives can't give representatives of European governments any pledge of American foreign policy in the years to come. Even if they did, foreign diplomats understand that with all the goodwill in the world, a pledge given today might be canceled tomorrow by either a new administration or Congress's refusal to endorse the policy. As far as my foreign diplomat friend can see, and he's been accustomed to watching such matters for years, America has not yet established any foreign policy that is not subject to party politics. Diplomats of foreign countries see, see no sign of an American policy that will be endorsed by the majority of Americans today, next month, and five years from now. 
This would not matter so much to the rest of the world if America were only a small power. The point that drives foreign observers to despair is that America is such a great world power that no international arrangement anywhere on the globe would be complete without her. America's absence would make any international pact or arrangement to maintain world peace a mockery. The first question that springs to the mind of a foreigner who attempts to shape out the general lines of the post-war world is, what will America do? Nobody knows. With the U.S. Congress squabbling, America Europe looked on. On Sunday, February 27th, the U.S. Office of Strategic Services began Operation Guinea 1 with the object of blowing up railway tunnels in Italy to cut German lines of communication. The mission failed when the OSS team landed in the wrong place and couldn't locate the tunnel. That same day, the Soviets massacred more than 700 people in Chechnya they deemed non-transportable. On Monday the 28th, the German 14th Army mounted attacks against the U.S. 6th Corps at Anzio, while also massacring roughly 1,000 ethnic Poles in the village of Huta Pianatska. Although the tide of the war was slowly turning, there were atrocities and accidents on both sides, and neither the Allies or the Axis was fighting a pristine campaign. Regardless, Europe understood that in a post-war world, if victory was achieved, the U.S. needed to be a main part of whatever League of Nations could be built after, while the U.S. didn't yet fully grasp just how much responsibility the country had in rebuilding Europe. America has inevitably been forced to enter at a time when she was neither materially nor mentally prepared. In spite of what is undoubtedly the best informed press and radio in the world, and in spite of the fact that some American leaders headed by the president understood the issues involved, European statesmen realized that there could be no question of asking America to help stop Hitler. The public opinion was not aware of the danger. Their greatest fear is that what has been twice evident will be for the third time repeated, that after this war, America will be so concerned in our own political affairs that she won't take part in world political planning. And once again, Germany may be able to take advantage of the confusion to build up a new force of aggression. The foreign minister I spoke of referred to Europe's plans for the future. Each plan ends in a big question mark. What will America do? Of what use is it for Europe to talk about food plans, reconstruction plans, when it seems evident that all those plans will have a direct effect on America. For instance, if Europe is to be properly fed after years of starvation, some of the experts here believe that the United States, one of the world's great food-producing regions, may have to establish a rationing scheme comparable with Britain's in order to produce the food to feed, say, the Greeks and the Yugoslavs. European observers ask whether America is prepared to face this question, to face stricter rationing in peace than in war. Without that knowledge, talk of feeding Europe is unreal. Can any American government afford to do this politically, say the Europeans? And if not, European starvation will continue, and the ground lie fallow for the seeds of new wars. Another question that haunts Europe is what kind of international organization will emerge? The foreign minister of the small country explained that, like it or not, all nations are part of the world community. Nobody can stay outside that community unless they go to the length Japan did up to the visit of Admiral Perry in the middle of the 19th century. But, said the statesman, for the city of the world, you must have a fire brigade, some nations of goodwill who will stop the fires from threatening the whole city. He noted that you wouldn't invite a man who is well known as a firebug to become a member of your fire department. In the same way, you wouldn't invite Germany and other habitual aggressive nations to become members of the International Committee whose job will be to stop aggression. 
the fear of Germany is at the moment the dominant feature of European post-war thinking. Europe is not certain what America and even Britain will decide to do about post-war Germany. You can talk with a Pole who'll tell you he's convinced that traditional British policy has always been to back Russia against Germany and then Germany against Russia. The Pole will tell you he doesn't believe Britain will see Germany completely finished as a European power. You can talk with European statesmen of various nationalities who believe that American capital will be used after this war, as after the last, to build up Germany's war industries. They ask whether the American government is going to control foreign investments, whether American capital will be channeled into building up the devastated areas of Russia and other allied countries, or whether American investors who still have holdings in Germany, despite Hitler's freezing of those assets, won't throw good money after bad and try to make Germany the number one priority among the areas of reconstruction investment. These doubts about Germany add to European uncertainty. And in European eyes, there's been no definition of American post-war policy that has the support and approval of the American people as a whole. There has been a general satisfaction here that the smaller European nations are to have a chance to discuss and dispute the ideas of the European Advisory Commission, the organ of the three largest powers. Something like a year ago, the impression prevailed that America, Britain, and Russia had decided to try running Europe on a power basis. The idea seemed to be, we're the biggest nation, so we'll decide what's to be done about Europe. There was one reason that the bumbling Dalam policy in North Africa affected so sharply opinion in nations like Norway and Greece. It didn't spring so much from enmity of Dalam as from the feeling that Dalam's position betrayed the ineptitude of big power politics. It seemed to Europeans that we were swinging our weight about in a way that showed complete misunderstanding of European realities and European thought. People from Western Europe will argue with you that although the British and the Russians are less given to making idealistic statements unsupported by fact, they, like America, are still not experts at interpreting European thought. Certainly the thesis could be drawn that Russia and Britain don't understand foreign countries as well as some other nations. In such circumstances, European nations have traditionally used France as a kind of sounding board or meeting point for ideas where the thought of Romania, for instance, might make sense to Americans, and Argentina's ideas made plain to Moscow. The downfall of France in June 1940 left a gap in international misunderstanding that was greater than the vacancy of a single nation. Just recently, however, the impression has grown that the three major powers are intending to give full value to the opinions of the smaller countries, that they're to be called on to play an important part in the remaking of Europe. These nations will undoubtedly make it plain to the greater powers that the prime necessity in Europe is control of Germany. One diplomat from a smaller country said, America and Russia can afford to make diplomatic mistakes. We can't. When Germany attacks Russia or a country like America, it may mean retreat in a long time before forces can hurl back the invader. But with we smaller countries, a German attack means all but extinction. That's why Europe's smaller nations will insist on a policy to stop Germany from ever getting in a position to start a new aggression. Yet once again, they ask, what is America's policy? This week's series of air raids on London have underlined the fact that Germany isn't yet beaten. The attacks were a confession of weakness for falling German morale had forced the Nazis to use precious planes of their overstrained air force against London instead of keeping them from the second front bridgeheads. But these raids have reminded Londoners that even though we are overwhelming Germany from the air, that huge forces are being prepared for the European assault, Germany still has more than a kick or two left. The raids are slight, and they'll, pre they'll prevent British overconfidence. And that's a good quality to leave at home when you meet the German armies on the continent. 
As far as the British experts can determine, the bulk of the Germans still believe that somehow or other Hitler can pull a victory out of the bag. The Germans feel it may be a diplomatic victory. At least they will hang on, and in the opinion of the best-informed Britishers, fight desperately until they realize that they can't defeat the Western Allies. It all depends on the Second Front. A German defeat in the West might cause Germany to crack up quicker than even the continuous Russian victories in the East. As far as anyone here knows, Germany's chances of doing the diplomatic sleight-of-hand act are very small. But Hitler and the other German leaders may feel that a desperate gamble might pay off. The worsening of the Polish situation may give us a hint of the German plan of action. Against all moderate counsel, the Poles seem to have stiffened against the use of the Curzon line as a basis for territorial negotiation with Russia. It's also been revealed here that the Polish government's instruction to Polish guerrillas were less plain than at first believed. In other words, there wasn't any plain statement that the Polish underground must cooperate with the Russian army against the Germans. Certainly among some Poles, there's a greater fear of Russia than of Germany. One can't know what will happen as the Red Army moves into Poland, but if the Germans should take advantage of this to support an anti-Russian Polish underground, the consequences would be plain. Once the American and British armies have locked with the Germans in the Second Front, the realization will be plain that America, Britain, and Russia sink or swim together. We all depend on one another. But the Germans may hope that by giving us an initial defeat in the West, they may discourage us and cause us to blame the Russians for it, or by holding us and giving the Russians a major setback, they may hope to get Russia out of the war. Distrust and enmity among the Allies are the instruments that will work a German victory. It's as well to remember that. Once we start distrusting the British, or the Russians, or the British or Russians distrust us, and the conditions for a German victory have been created. This union and misunderstandings between us and the smaller nations of Europe are dangerous, but disunion with our major allies is the shortest path to catastrophe. America and Britain, like Russia, must win this war. That's why the attitude of the Polish government toward Russia and toward Germany must affect all the allied powers in the end. You can see the danger inherent in the situation that might give Germany a chance to play upon and make important ordinary differences between the allies that are now not important. International cooperation is a tender plant that must be watered frequently with efforts at understanding the other country's point of view. Yet it has become so necessary to our own safety that no labor and no difficulty is too great if a sturdy growth survives the war and blossoms in the peace beyond. This is John McVeigh returning you to the NBC Newsroom in New York. You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war as seen from London by John McVeigh, NBC's veteran observer in the British capital. War Telescope is presented each Saturday at this same time, 1.45 Eastern Wartime, over most of these stations. This program has come to you from London and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Bye. You've made how many films now, do you know? Offhand? About 59, I think. 59 films. Yeah. yeah. And I'm you're still making them. You just did one. Just finished one that opened at the Music Hall. Yeah. Radio City Music Hall. I was kind of delighted about that because we were on for Paramount for so long, you know. Everything played oh, yeah. the Paramount Theater here, all our first run films and uh, 
I was kind of delighted that they took this film. Of course, they have a little problem getting clean films over there. They play to a family audience, you know. The music hall. Yeah. In your movies, you've always called attention to the fact that you're making movies, which I always thought was funny. At the end of The Pale Face, you turn and say, I'd like to see him top this on television. And that was yeah, so, well, that it's, was uh, we, we started that in a thing called Favorite Blonde, where Bing played the truck driver, you know, and it's always kind of a surprise, and it's always played well. Yeah. For the safety of your smile, use Pepsodent twice a day, see your dentist twice a year. Again this week, the Pepsodent Company presents another in its series of broadcasts to our men in the armed forces, wherever they may be. Tonight, for the men of the Air Service Command at Brookby Field, Mobile, Alabama, the Pepsodent Show. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob, who is supposed to be in Alabama, but is held over by the Dr. Hope. <laughs> Telling you men of the Air Corps, whether you're going on a date or sitting behind a propeller, brush your teeth with Pepsodent, and under your smeller, you'll never have an AWLer. <laughs> well, I was supposed to... <laughs> I was supposed to fly to Alabama for this broadcast tonight, but my doctor grounded me. All week, I've had a pretty nurse. She grounded me, too. <laughs> I've had a cold all week. I got a cold because of a change in the unusual California weather. Stopped raining one day and my system couldn't stand it. <laughs> really, I've had this cold so long, I don't know where my nose ends and the atomizer begins. How could I make a mistake like that? I, I couldn't get anything strong enough to kill the germs. If worse comes to worse, I may get W.C. Fields to breathe on me. <laughs> the bags under my eyes are so bad, I started getting fan mail from bellboys. <laughs> really, I looked so bad, I walked past an undertaking parlor yesterday, and the palms in the window rustled at me. <laughs> and when Crosby and I would walk down the street, no matter how we were walking, people would look after us and say, isn't the man supposed to be on the outside? <laughs> But everybody in Hollywood has been sick. Dorothy Lamour had the flu. Hedy Lamar had the grip. Gypsy Rosalie had a strip throat. I'm, I'm making a picture now with Dorothy Lamour in Crisco called The Road to Utopia. Utopia, that's some place where everyone's on furlough. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. If there's such a road as The Road to Utopia, Dorothy is Highway 66. I don't know what a sarong is doing for the war effort, but the pin is certainly holding up its end. <laughs> In one scene, I make love to Dorothy Lamour while it's 30 below zero. It's not very realistic, though. All during the scene, the smoke is coming out of my ears. <laughs> I really get a big kick out of kissing Dorothy Lamour. That's the only way the director can make me stop. <laughs> I, uh... <laughs> In one scene, I had to kiss Lamour 120 times. I don't know whether it affected me or not, but I'm the only guy that ever blacked out while he was still on the ground. <laughs> But tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I'm hosting a lot of boys here at the NBC studio from the Glendale Army Air Base. And it's wonderful learning how to fly in sunny California. It's the only place in the country where a pilot and a runway get washed out at the same time. <laughs> you know, it's very invigorating living here in California. Every, every February, the, tra the, the rain rearranges... <laughs> 
my tongue, too. <laughs> Can't get the coat off. Say, where are we? <laughs> it's very... Uh, I'll start over. It's very invigorating living here in California. Every, every February, the rain rearranges the streets and towns, and by the time you get to know your way around, it's February again. <laughs> the men here use P-38s, and now they fast. It's a military secret just how fast they are. But the other day, one of them went 300 miles an hour, and it came back because the ground crew forgot to start the propellers. <laughs> and everyone in California is air-minded. The other day, I saw a bunch of pigeons watching one pigeon that was banging its head against the wall. I said, gee, what's the matter? And another pigeon pointed at the first one and said, he's a sad mental case. He always admired the P-38s, and he went crazy trying to grow two tails. <laughs> Bob Hope. And here's Sylvester Colonna. <laughs> Colonna, how was your train trip down to Mobile? Rough riding. How come? No tracks. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous, Colonna. How could a train ride without tracks? Simple. No wheels. <laughs> well, you didn't take the train with the rest of us, Professor. Tell me, uh, how did you travel across the country? Why, easy, Wendell. Took the Greyhound out of Los Angeles, and 20 minutes later, I was in Dallas, Texas. Now, wait, you went from Los Angeles to Dallas in 20 minutes? Well, how did the Greyhound make it so fast? Got interested in another Greyhound. <laughs> Colonna, how do you account for the fact that two normal parents have a jackass for a son? Oh, I don't know. Why don't you take your problems to Mr. Anthony? <laughs> Colonna, I fear for your sanity. Uh, never been there, Niles. Never been where? Your sanity. Uh, but Yellowstone is quite beautiful. I can't stop talking about the lovely trip I had out here from Los Angeles. You know, I came by kangaroo and I slept all the way. Colonna, how could you sleep if you were traveling on a kangaroo? I had a couch in the pouch. <laughs> oh, that's ridiculous. Why do you like to travel in a kangaroo's pouch? Oh, it keeps my watch going. Professor, you're certainly in a gay mood tonight. Why are you so happy? I'm always happy. In fact, I was born laughing. You were born laughing? How come? Small stock, big tail feathers. On February 29th, 1944, Bob Hope was supposed to be in Mobile, Alabama for the first leg of a tour. He was unfortunately grounded by a cold. Instead, he broadcast his portion of the show from Hollywood, while the cast broadcast from Mobile. Lancer therapy. I saw Jack Benny. Here at the Ziegfeld one time, they started out very slow, and finally with his style got that audience, and he grew three inches on the stage, you know? Like somebody was watering him, you know? Yeah. And he finished walking off on his tiptoes. Of course, he always walks that way anyway, but he was uh, beautiful, and there, there's a real hand. All my kids take chops at me, you know? Yeah, they all, they all love it. They've been around me so long that they all like to lay it in and top me every once in a while. My oldest daughter has a devastating sense of humor. She's very subtle and uh, she's very smart. She chops me up quite a bit because they used to listen to my monologues. I used to come down when I'd get this monologue for radio. You remember radio? Of course. That yeah. knob in the car on the left. <laughs> yes, I remember that. Well, anyway, I used to bring the, uh, the monologue down after, you know, it only cost about 
$18,000, and I'd prune the whole thing down, mm -hmm. lay it on the table, and they'd all be sitting there, the four kids and my wife, and they'd be talking, finally say, why don't you read the monologue? I'd say, well, I will, all right. <clears throat> How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Bob Pepson and Hope, living by the skin of your teeth, so-and-so and so-and-so, and she'd say, Kelly, sit up, will you please, when you eat? <laughs> I'd lay the thing down. Now they'd all look back at me after they got through talking, say, all right, read, sorehead. You know. And you climbed above this and went on to... Yeah, it went on. No, it was a great thing because by the time I got to the studio, they sounded friendly. <laughs> Once able to travel, Hope met his crew in transit, but not before being given a special award for his many services to the Academy at the March 2nd, 1944 Oscars. The Hope Show's itinerary included the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner for President Roosevelt on March 4th. On March 7th, the cast would be in Miami, on March 14th in Jacksonville, on March 21st in Macon, Georgia, on March 25th, a special from the Cleveland Canteen, and on March 28th, they'd be in Colorado Springs. Like ships adrift, we're swept apart too soon. Speak low, darling, speak low. Love is a spark lost in the dark. Too soon, too soon, I feel where. certainly made a hit with these boys at Brooklyn Fields. But, uh, say, what was going on between you and that officer at the gate today? What makes you think something was going on? Well, he should have been guarding that gate, not swinging on it. <laughs> Why, Francis, there's no admission. Oh, say, I wonder if I'd be that bright if I went to OCS.
Why, he's a very sweet boy. He was going to send me a dozen orchids and take me to an expensive restaurant for champagne and roast squab. But then he sent me a note canceling the date. Why? What did he say happened? The dice cooled off. <laughs> you know, I wish somebody down here would give me a good recipe for southern fried chicken. Well, that's easy to prepare, Fran. You just fry the chicken in batter, stick it in the oven, and keep basting it with mint juleps. You keep basting it with mint juleps for how long? Oh, you don't have to time it. When the oven door opens and it walks out whistling Dixie, that's southern fried chicken. <laughs> look more like a little Dixie cup. <laughs> oh, the idea, Mr. Niles. How can you be so insulting as to say I look like a Dixie cup? A Dixie cup is something that these soldiers put up to their lips. <laughs> oh, what a nice compliment! Oh, look at all these handsome rebels out here. <laughs> Miss Vague, these boys are from all over the country, so I'd say they're Yankees. Well, I chased them all over the camp, and I'd say they're rebels. Boys are airplane repair crews, Miss Vague, and they keep them flying. Oh, no, they have the same effect on me. <laughs> well, Miss Vague, I guess you're really enjoying yourself here at Brooklyn Field. Oh, yes, Mr. Niles. This afternoon, you know, I went all over the field with a pork chop between my teeth. Miss Vague, going all over the field with a pork chop between your teeth? Uh-huh. You must have gotten some funny glances. Uh, yes, and I got to neck with a lot of chow hounds, too. <laughs> I'm having. You know, these southern men have been kissing my hand all day. These southern men have been kissing your hand all day? Well, I can't understand that. Oh, it's only natural. My charm, my intelligence. Soaking my fingers in bourbon every half an hour didn't hurt either. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I suppose the water on your knee came in handy for a chaser. Alabama, aren't you? <laughs> but then you don't have to be self-conscious about the shape of your head here in the watermelon state. <laughs> Why, Miss Vega, aren't you going to speak to me? You, oh, oh, pardon me, Miss Langford. <laughs> Hello. Goodness, I just didn't notice you standing there with all that nice blonde hair. Oh, I've seen so much cotton down here. <laughs> Well, I must say, Miss Vague, you're dressed very appropriately for this tobacco country. Oh, do you like this new uh, creation? Yes. Yes, you really look stunning in that strapless Bull Durham sack. <laughs> well, all I know is that these southern men have been calling me at the hotel all day and pestering me for dates. Yes, I know, Vera. And that was very fast thinking, signing the register as Scarlett O'Hara. But let's not talk like this, Vera. You know, I'm not at all catty myself. Oh, I know it, dear, and I'm not at all catty Mm -hmm. either. Neither of us are really catty. I know it. (laughs) Well, that was fun. Now let's step out in the hall and compare mice. (laughs) You know, I really have much time for you right now, dear. I'm busy trying to meet one of these southern colonels. Well, I have just a man for you, Miss Vega, Colonel Colonna. What do you want, Yankee? Colonna, you know Miss Vague, don't you? Uh, hiya, Jackson. Glad to know you, Stonewall. <laughs> oh, bless 
your heart, Moss Marsh. <laughs> you know, Professor, when I look at your mustache, I keep thinking of that popular song, The Surrey with the Fringe All Over. <laughs> Professor, be honest. Wouldn't you like to see me stretched out before the fireplace in your little home? Oh, no, thanks. I've already got a polar bear rug. <laughs> Professor, tell me, don't you think it's time I settle down? Yes, in several places. <laughs> Professor, you don't understand. I mean, are you looking for a wife? Yes. Are you? Oh, Professor. Listen, we'd make such a romantic couple. Just picture it. The two of us sitting arm in arm under an Alabama moon. The soft gulf breeze. The heavy scent of magnolia and jasmine. Then you'd put your cheek to my cheek. And tenderly you'd whisper. My dear, you need a shave. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, you can walk into your dealer and say, give me a tube of Pepsodent toothpaste, and you don't need a used metal tube to exchange. No more empty tubes required. But remember to say Pepsodent, because only Pepsodent contains irium. And Pepsodent toothpaste with irium removes film that makes teeth look dull. It loosens film and floats it away quickly, easily, safely. And when film is gone... Pepsodent toothpaste brings new brilliance to your teeth, uncovers the natural brightness of your smile. Remember, you don't have to turn in empty tubes anymore. Bring those you have, of course, because used tubes contain valuable tin. But now you can get all the Pepsodent toothpaste you need without an empty tube. Remember, Pepsodent toothpaste, because only Pepsodent contains irium. Very simple. Nursey dotes and dolsey dotes simply means Rev. Branks, I've stared at the real spell, mildly the salt, but with a vocational tax to grant, the tax writing each coat, 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 Of course, L. Branks is too wise to lift the catchy mouse and all, then we come to the next line. For example, little lampsy divey, since uh, simply means 
chocolate scorpion based on the Melfordov Blizzcape. Bring out to the black gum. Furthermore, the best way that I can explain a kiddly diary, too, is by quoting a line from a speech I once made. Quote, Hudson Quentin sleeps constantly cock the bronc, a bed of slid, I'll bust the collar bronc and blow for the tire bronc. <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> now, when you go out on a date with your sweetheart and you hold her in your arms, you say, Nursey dotes and dozy dotes. She will look into your eyes and whisper, What's the matter, you crazy or something? <laughs> ah, but don't let that worry you. Don't let that stop you at all. Just hold her closely in your arms and sing. A kiddly divey too, not me. I'll eat bananas and make me and you all sound very happy down there tonight. That was all right, that Mersey Dose. I wish I was with you. I'm kind of lonesome up here all by myself on the stage at NBC. Yeah, Grannies, I hope this is the right studio. Well, it must be, Lom. That man at the door was his brother, wasn't it? <laughs> Which one? You know, the one you bought the Cracker Jacks from. Well, that wasn't Bob Hope's brother. Huh? That was Bob Hope. <laughs> yeah, right in here, Abner. This looks like the place. It does, huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is the place we're looking for. See, there's the sign. Bob Hope Show. Autographs, 25 cents. <laughs> What's the rest of that? In ink, 35 cents. <laughs> Full name, 45 cents. <laughs> Deluxe deal, autograph, handshake, and kiss, one dollar. <laughs> Who does he think he is, Red Skeleton? Uh <laughs> Who's there loving out now? Come here, boys. Hiya, fellas. Hiya, boys. I, is this a man, Lum? Hi, dog, he does look bad. <laughs> Only thing I can suggest is that he put a splint on it and wait till it curves down again. <laughs> oh, oh, it ain't... It... It ain't his nose that's bothering him. Mr. Hope's li uh, Mr. Hope likes his nose curled up like that. He, is he crazy? Well, we ain't got to that yet. Oh. Well, are you sure this is Bob Hope? Why, of course this is Bob Hope, Abner. How are you? If you don't believe it, here, look at my draft card. Yeah, I'd love to see that. Yes, sir, that's what I want to see. Let me look at that right now. Hmm. What does it say? I never know they's drafting wax. <laughs> Hey, let's see that. Uh, what's that classification 5X? That's coward. Say, but it's nice, uh, nice of you fellas to drop in here. Yeah, we heard you met up with the flu germ, Mr. Holt. Oh, so you came over to cheer me up, huh? Yeah, we come over to cheer up the germ. <laughs> All right, doggies, I'm in the groove tonight, you know what? <laughs> yeah, we heard you on the radio last week, and we could tell you was getting sick. 
Uh, when did you first notice you was ailing, Mr. Well, last Thursday, I was standing on Vine Street, and a blonde, two brunettes, and a redhead walked by. What happened? Nothing. That's when I called the doctor. <laughs> well, we brung you a little medicine. It's just what you need, I think. It puts iron in your system. Oh, don't be silly. I've already got lots of iron in my system. Yeah, well, maybe this will take the rust off of you. <laughs> I don't give this to everybody because it's a family secret. My great-grandfather handed it down to my grandfather, and my grandfather handed it down to my father, and my father handed it down to me. Well, that sounds interesting. Is it any good? Well, we don't know. We're still trying to get somebody to try it. <laughs> but I've only got a slight cough. It isn't a little early for the embalming fluid? <laughs> well, it's good stuff. It's got tar in it and sulfur and alcohol and nitroglycerine and... Cures all aches and pains and ailments whatsoever of man and beast. Also makes good dressing for the hair. <laughs> well, what do I do? Just unscrew the top and blow the flame out, huh? <laughs> uh, wh where did you get this flu germ? I think I picked it up over at Crosby's house. Oh. Has his kids got it? No, he was making up a package to send to Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> I really shouldn't pick on Frank that way. He's a nice fella. Just when he was a young kid, his mother pulled his bow tie too hard. That's what <laughs> I happened to be over there when uh, Bing was playing a record of his, and I think it settled in my ears. I have something. <laughs> oh, settled in your ears, huh? Yeah. I'll well, well let's my... take a look. Well, no wonder. Look at. No wonder he has trouble with his ears. Look oh, at what there. Is well, what do you mean? Well, the drums are playing Marzy Dose. <laughs> Man, look at the size of them ears, would you, Lum? <laughs> Just look at that. A P-38 head with B-29 wings. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, you think mine are big. You should see those tent flaps on Crosby. <laughs> you mean they're extra special? They sure are. In the next election, the Republicans are going to use them for their mascot. <laughs> Well, what happened to the elephant they used uh, last time? Crosby's got him running in Hialeah. <laughs> I, I still say if you'd try this remedy of mine, you'd be a changed man. Well, I couldn't take that stuff, Lum. People would laugh at me. That's what I mean. You'd be a changed man. Yeah. <laughs> but now, don't you worry about your show tonight, Mr. Hope. You ain't got a thing to worry about, because... Me and Lum, we come over here to help you put it on. Oh, well, that's fine. Yeah, see, I'm going to sing a bunch of songs. Yeah, well, I... And I'm going to make a speech. And yeah, well... I'll play my harmonica. Yeah, and I'll tell a bunch of funny jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody want my part? <laughs> well, fellas, it's been nice of you to drop in, but we're on the air right now, and if you'll just let you me go... You mean on a coast-to-coast -coast hookup? That's right. With thousands listening? Thousand millions. Oh. Well, that's different. Now, if you'd have taken Alka-Seltzer in the first place... You now, now, now wait a minute. Fellas, this is a Pepsi. And show. one of the multiple it. vitamin tablets. Now, wait a minute. This is a Pepsi. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, Lemon Abner. Thanks very much for helping me out tonight. And I'm going to come over and visit you on your own show pretty soon. Thanks very much. Aren't they swell? Okay, tap it for me. Oh. 
more thanks for the memory to Brooklyn Field and crew. I thought I'd be with you, but the doctor said to stay in bed until I blew this flu. So thank you so much. Say, want to thank Major McCarthy and the whole gang here from the Glendale Air Base tonight. It's really swell of you to come over. And later this week, I'm going to fly to Mobile, and we'll make arrangements for that big benefit down there. So roll out the Dixie Cups down there at Brookley Field. General Mollison, Colonel Rawlings, and all those great boys. We'll get together. And speaking of these 38 pilots and ground crews out here tonight, the enemies learned that lightning does strike twice in the same place. And if it's a P-38 lightning, it strikes any place. The lightning supply protection for the forts and liberators, and the Air Service Command boys supply high-octane and replacement parts and everything needed to keep an Air Force in the warpath. You can't fly without planes, but even with planes, you can't fly without ground crews, and the ground crews need the Air Service Command, and they all need the Red Cross. Yes, sir, plenty of pilots and gunners and leathernecks and doggies are alive tonight because of Red Cross blood plasma, and kids sweating it out behind Nazi prison wire saw a little American sunshine today because of Red Cross food and medical kits. And the medics worked miracles again today, partly because of nurses recruited by Red Cross. And there's hot coffee and donuts in Italy tonight because of pretty Red Cross girls, and laughter in the jungles because of Red Cross service clubs. And, well, why go any further? Yesterday in Canada, and tomorrow morning in these United States, we start filling the kitty for the Red Cross. Let's squeeze out all we can. For when we do, we're squeezing the hand of that kid on the fighting front and saying... Buddy, I'm not just in there behind you. I'm in there beside you. Good night. Again, the Tufted and Company has presented another broadcast for the men in the armed forces, wherever they may be. Next week, Tufted will present Bob Hope playing for the Officers' Candidate School in Miami, Florida. This broadcast is not constituted an endorsement since the War Department does not endorse any product. This program came to you from Mobile, Alabama and Hollywood, California. This is the National Broadcasting Company. You're really laying out some of those pictures tonight, aren't you? I think that one was from possibly the big broadcast. I'm not sure, from 1938. That's where you first saying thanks for the memory, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Gee, as I look at you, I still don't believe you're here, you know. You were such a thing to me as I was coming up as a kid, and um, I don't mean to keep emphasizing age. No. Because certainly nobody has conquered age is any better than you have. That's right. And you know what General Eisenhower said about age. There's three, three stages of life. Youth, maturity, and God, you look good. <laughs> yes. Which I love. Yeah. And it's oh. true, too. You never get a chance to look back because I've always had a staff that goes on and on. And we, we lay on the headlines all the time, you know. Yeah. So we don't actually go back. Yeah. Unless we go back. Well, that brings our look at Bob Hope's career in February of 1944 to a close. We'll be staying in 1944 the remainder of the year, and next month, we'll spend March 1944 with a program considered to be the first spin-off in sitcom history. That, mm -hmm. See, after they called the character Throckmorton, then uh -huh. I moved in next door. Remember, I was his neighbor, and, uh -huh. and I even had a wife on the show, but she was never heard. She was oh. only talked about. Did know? she have a name? Molly just occasionally said, oh, there's Mrs. Gildersleeve. Oh, Mrs. Gildersleeve, I see, I and see. that was about it, you know. When I made the transition from my own show and became a bachelor, I don't think I even had one letter asking, what happened to your wife? Because <laughs> no one ever had ever heard of her. 
Next time on Breaking Walls, we spotlight Hal Perry and the Great Gildersleeve, which between February and March of 1944 pulled a rating of 19 points, making it the most listened to show airing at 6.30 p.m. in radio history. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning, Bob Hope, The Road Well Traveled by Lawrence J. Quirk, The Spirit of Bob Hope, 100 Years, 1 Million Laughs by Richard Grudens, Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg, Bob Hope, The Road from Eltham by Charles Thompson, as well as articles from Aces of World War II, Broadcasting Magazine, The Military Times, Radio Daily, and The Seattle Times. On the interview front, Bob Hope was with both Dick Cavett in 1972 and Johnny Carson in 1974. Ken Carpenter, Jim Jordan, Harriet Nelson, Wendell Niles, Hal Peary, and Lorene Tuttle spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear these chats at speakingofradio.com. Jim Jordan also spoke to Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear this interview and many more at goldenage-wtic.org. Red Skelton spoke with Merv Griffin in 1975. And Bing Crosby spoke with Same Time, Same Station. Selected music featured in today's episode was Thanks for the Memory by Bob Hope and Shirley Ross and Ghostbust Tours by George Fenton. Subscribe to Burning Gotham, the audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA radio network. And a special thanks to Doug Hopkinson, who provided the Bob Hope episode with Bing Crosby that aired on February 15, 1944. Breaking Walls episode 149 will spotlight the Great Gildersleeve in March of 1944. This episode will be available beginning March 1st, 2024, everywhere you can get a podcast and at thewallbreakers.com, especially YouTube. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash thewallbreakers and support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. So until March 1st, my name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls episode 148. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>